Welcome to another episode of Corona Cold Reads, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Every Tuesday and Saturday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern, we're getting together on YouTube Live to broadcast a cold reading of a Shakespeare play. Our actors run the gamut from um, non-professional actors to some of the biggest names in uh, North American classical theater. Um, But what we all have in common is just a really genuine love of Shakespeare and in these uncertain, really genuinely scary times, um, what makes us feel better is getting together and listening to the text and exploring these stories together. So hopefully these episodes will bring you comfort as well, and you'll enjoy them as much as we enjoyed recording them. Um, All of the videos are available on our YouTube channel, which you just search My Entertainment World, um, as well as on our website, myentertainmentworld.ca, where you can find the full cast lists, um, as well as lots of other articles and all of our other content that we have going up all the time. Um, also, you should follow us on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram. It's both my ent world, my ENT world. Um, there you'll see, be able to see highlights from all of the recordings, um, as well as you can get the links to watch us live. Um, But we also have all sorts of content created just specifically for those platforms. In addition to, um, that's where you can find links to all of our website content as well, which is myentertainmentworld.ca. The videos do stay up after the live recordings. You can watch them after the fact, or you can catch the audio version in the podcast feed, um, which is you just search My Entertainment World in uh, iTunes, and there you'll find all of our different podcast series where we have the favorite series, the Shakespeare series, the nominee interview series, uh, Corona Cold Reads, Corona Movie Club, season one, episode one, and the My Entertainment World podcast. Um, Tons of different things happening. There's never been a better time to subscribe to our podcast. We have so much content happening right now. Um, but you're here for Corona Cold Reads for Shakespeare. Um, so these are cold reads for the most part. Uh, our actors n- did not have more than a day, maybe two, if they're lucky, um, to look over the text if they wanted to. Most of them didn't have the chance to, so it is just them sitting down and reading it cold. Um, so you'll you'll be able to hear that there will be some rocky moments and sometimes when we may have to pause and um, wonder why somebody's got their zoom on mute or you know how things happen. Um, we're all adjusting to these new technologies to cope with what we're going through right now. So I hope you enjoy. Today's play is Henry V, which is the center point of the full eight play Henriad cycle. Um, it is the end of the little mini Hal trilogy um, and the third play in which we see his rise um, to sort of triumph and uh, conquering France and getting the girl. Uh, that's all what happens in this play. Uh, there's also a really, there's a really, we have an interesting episode of the Shakespeare series. If you want a, more of a synopsis of what Henry V is, I'm not going to tell you now. Um, because you're about to listen to it, but also because we do have this great episode, uh, me talking to Eli Ham uh, in depth about Henry V. If you want to go listen to some analysis, either before or after you listen to this episode, that is also in our feed, and you can find that on myentertainmentworld.ca. But back to what I was talking about. So uh, this is the center point of the Henry ad. Um, that's really there isn't a lot to say. You're going to hear our troubadours again. Um, at the beginning of this episode with a recap of what happened in Henry IV Part Two, in case you weren't able to listen to the utter madness that was that recording um, or haven't read it or just forgot, whatever. Um, it's fun to listen to the troubadours tell you what's what. Um, and then we have 
Henry V for you. It's a pretty straightforward play, but like the rest of the history plays, we, it has a billion characters. Um, so you have to listen carefully. People are going to be playing multiple roles. Um, the lead is played by Scott Garland. In his third, he played uh, Prince Hal in parts one and two, and then is is Henry in this one, in the sort of, um, not penultimate, the conclusion of his arc. Um, yeah, and then we'll be getting into Henry VI later after a time jump. So enjoy the end of the Hal saga, everybody. <clears throat> Hal have won the deadly battle at Shrewsbury. Some rebel leaders still wage war. They still hope for victory. Falstaff has reaped reward by claiming he was Hotspur's downfall. He's put in charge of recruiting men. Instead, he drinks and brawls. Classic And now the time is nigh for how to lead the monarchy. He plays one last prank on Jack, who spills all the tea. But no shade, of course. Meanwhile, the traitors aren't great. <coughs> Northumberland won't send his men. The Welsh Glendower has been defeated. They're looking at the end. And Henry IV is sick. And every day he just gets worse. He's missed his chance to join the Crusades. Has the crown become a curse? Heavy is ahead. And then his son named John tricks his foes into ending their suit. Has them arrested right there. Yeah, he pledges to execute. It's a little, it's a little shady. It was a little shady. Yeah. But now the king lays dying, and he's concerned about the heir to the throne. But just in time, Hal comes to his side and proves how much he's grown. The king dies peacefully, surrounded by all four of his sons. That's a Clarence, a Gloucester, Lancaster, and Hal. The Chief Justice is promoted, how repents for all he's done. So Henry's on his way, he'll have to leave Falstaff behind. Prove he's worthy of the throne and show off his military mind. So what will happen now? This king is less than the first. He's off to France to fight some more. Can it even get worse? Can it actually get worse? Beautiful. <laughs> All right. Henry V, 
Act One, Prologue, Enter Chorus. Uh, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry like himself, assume the port of Moors, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this Zoom room hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this small window the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high Uprearred and abutting fronts, the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out, our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts divide one man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them, printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the witch supply, admit me, Horus, to this history, who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. Exit. Scene one, London, an antechamber in the King's Palace. Enter the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Ely. My lord, I'll tell you that self-bill is urged, which in the eleventh year of the last king's reign was like and had indeed against us passed, but that the scambling and the unquiet time did push it out of farther question. But how, my lord, shall we resist it now? It must be thought on. If it passed against us, we lose the better half of our possession. For all the temporal lands which men devout by testament have given to the church, would they strip from us, being valued thus as much as would maintain to the king's honor, full fifteen earls and fifteen hundred knights, six thousand and two hundred good esquires, and to relief of lasers and weak age, of indigent faint souls past corporal toil, a hundred almhouses right well supplied, into the coffers of the king beside, a thousand pounds by the year. Thus runs the bill. This would drink deep. Twould drink the cup and all. But what prevention 
The king is full of grace and a fair regard. And a true lover of the holy church. The courses of his youth promised it not. The breath no sooner left his father's body, but that wildness mortified in him, seemed to die too. Yea, at that very moment, consideration like an angel came and whipped the offending Adam out of him, leaving his body as a paradise to envelop and contain celestial spirits. Never was such a sudden scholar made. Never came reformation in a flood with such a heady currents, scouring faults, nor never hydra-headed willfulness. So soon did lose his seat in all at once, as in the king. We are blessed in the change. Hear him but reason in divinity, and all admiring with an inward wish, you would desire the king were made a prelate. Hear him debate of commonwealth affairs. He would say it hath uh, been all in all his study. List his discourse of war, and you shall hear. A fearful battle rendered you in music. Turn him to any cause of policy. The Gordian knot of it he will unloose, familiar as his garter that, when he speaks, the air a chartered libertine is still, and the mute wonder lurketh in men's ears to steal his sweet and honeyed sentences, so that the art and practice part of life must be the mistress to this theoric which is a wonder how his grace should glean it, since his addiction was to course his vein, his companies unlettered, rude, and shallow, his hours filled up with riots, banquets, sports, and never noted him in any study, any retirement, any sequestrian from open haunts and popularity. The strawberry grows underneath the nettle, and wholesome berries thrive and ripen best, neighbored by fruit of baser quality. And so the prince obscured his contemplation under the veil of wildness, which no doubt grew like the summer grass, fastest by night, unseen, yet crescive in his falcons. It must be so, for miracles are ceased, and therefore we must needs admit the means how things are perfected. But good my lord, how now for mitigation of this bill urged by the commons, Doth his majesty incline to it or no? He seems indifferent, or rather swaying more upon our part than cherishing the exhibitors against us. For I have made an offer to his majesty upon our spiritual convocation, and in regard of causes now in hand, which I have opened to his grace at large as touching France to give a greater sum than ever at one time the clergy yet did to his predecessors part withal. How did this offer seem received, my lord? With good acceptance of his majesty, say that there was not time enough to hear, as I perceived his grace would fain have done, uh, the severals and unhidden passages of his true titles to some certain dukedoms, and generally to the crown and seat of France, derived from Edward, his great-grandfather. What was the impediment that broke this off? The French ambassador upon that instant craved audience, and the hour, I think, is come to him hearing. Uh, Is it four o'clock? It is. Then go we in to know his embassy, which I could with a ready guess declare before the Frenchman speak a word of it. I'll wait upon you, and I long to hear it. Exunt, scene two, the same, the presence chamber. Enter King Henry V, Gloucester, Bedford, Exeter, Warwick, Westmoreland, and attendants. Where is my gracious Lord of Canterbury? Not here in presence. Hmm. Uh, send for him, good uncle. 
Shall we call in the ambassador, my liege? Not yet, my cousin. We would be resolved before we hear him of some things of weight that task our thoughts concerning us and France. Enter the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Ely. God and his angels guard your sacred throne and make you long become it. Sure, we thank you, my learned lord. We pray you to proceed and justly and religiously unfold why the law, Salik, that they have in France should or should not bar us uh, in our claim. And God forbid, my dear and faithful Lord, that you should fashion, rest, or bow your reading, or nicely charge your understanding soul with opening titles miscreate, whose right suits not in native colors with the truth. For God doth know how many now in health shall drop their blood in approbation of what your reverence shall incite to us. Therefore, take heed how you impawn our person, how you awake our sleeping sword of war. We charge you, in the name of God, take heed. For never two such kingdoms did contend without much fall of blood, whose guiltless drops are every one a woe, a sore complaint against him whose wrong gives edge unto thy swords, that make such a waste in brief mortality. Under this conjuration, speak, my lord, for we will hear note and believe in heart that what you speak is your conscience washed as pure as sin with baptism. Then hear me, gracious sovereign, and you peers, that owe yourselves, your lives and services to this imperial throne. There is no bar to make against your highness's claim to France, but this, which they produce from Pharamond, Interim salicam mulieres ni No woman shall succeed in Salic land, which Salic land the French unjustly glows to be the realm of France and Faramond, the founder of this law and female bar. Yet their own authors faithfully affirm that the land Salic is in Germany, between the floods of Sala and Elbe, where Charles the Great, having subdued the Saxons, left behind and settled certain French, who, holding in disdain the German women for some dishonest matters of their life, established then this law, to wit, no female should be inheritrix in Salic land, which Salic, as I said, twixt Elba and Sally, uh, as at this day in Germany called Meissen. Then doth it well appear that Salic law was not devised for the realm of France, nor did the French possess the Salic land until 401 and 20 years after defunction of King Pharamond. Idly suppose the founder of this law, who died within the year of our redemption, 426, and Charles the Great subdued the Saxons and did steep the French beyond the river Sala in the year 805. Besides, their writers say, King Pepin, who deposed uh, Childeric, did as heir general, being descended of Blythold, which was daughter to King Clothair, make claim and title to the crown of France. Hugh Capet, also, who usurped the crown of Charles the Duke of Lorraine, sole heir male of the true line and stock of Charles the Great, to find his title with some shows of truth. Through in pure truth, it was corrupt in not. Conveyed himself as heir to the Lady Lingare, daughter to the Charlemagne, who was the son to Louis the Emperor, and Louis the son of Charles the Great. Also, King Louis the Tenth, 
who was sole heir to the super Capet, would, could not keep quiet in his conscience, wearing the crown of France, till satisfied that fair Queen Isabel, his grandmother, was lineal of the Lady Ermengale, daughter to Charles, the foresaid Duke of Lorraine. By the which marriage, the line of Charles the Great was reunited to the crown of France, so that, as clear as in the summer sun, King Pepin's title in Hugh Capet's claim, King Louis, his satisfaction, all appear to hold in right in title of the female. So do the kings of France unto this day, howbeit they would hold up this salique law to bar your highness claiming from the female and rather choose to hide them in a net than amply to embar their crooked titles usurped from you and your uh, progenitors. Everyone got that? <laughs> May I, with right and conscience, make this claim? The sin upon my head, dread sovereign. For in the book of Numbers is, 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 is it writ, when the man dies, let the inheritance descend unto the daughter. Gracious Lord, stand for your own, unwind your bloody flag, look back unto your mighty ancestors. Go, my dread lord, to your great-grandsire's tomb, from whom you claim invoke his warlike spirit, and your great-uncles, Edward the Black Prince, who on the French ground played a tragedy, making defeat on the full power of France, whilst his most, most mighty father on a hill stood smiling to behold his lion's whelp, forage in blood of French nobility. O oh, noble English that could entertain with half their forces the full pride of France, and let another's half stand laughing by, all out of work and cold for action. Awake remembrance of these valiant dead, and with your puissant arm renew their feats. You are their heir. You sit upon their throne. The blood and courage that renowned them runs in your veins, and my thrice puissant liege is in the very May morn of his youth, ripe for exploits and mighty enterprises. Your brother kings and monarchs of the earth do all expect that you should rouse yourself, as did the former lions of your blood. They know your grace hath cause and means and might, so hath your highness. Never king of England had nobles richer and more loyal subjects whose hearts have left their bodies here in England and lie pavilioned in the fields of France. Oh, let their bodies follow, my dear liege, with blood and sword and fire to win your right. In aid whereof we of the spirituality will raise your highness such a mighty sum as never did the clergy at one time bring to any of your ancestors. We must not only arm to invade French, but lay down our proportion to defend against the Scot, who will make road upon us with all advantages. They of those marches, gracious sovereign, shall be a wall sufficient to defend our inland from the pilfering borderers. We do not mean the coursing snatchers only, but fear the main intendment of the Scot, who have been still a giddy neighbor to us. For you shall read that my great-grandfather never went with his forces into France, but that the Scot on his unfurnished kingdom came pouring like a tide into a breach with ample and brim fullness of its force galling the gleaned land with hot assays, girdling with grievous siege castles and towns that England, being empty to defense, hath shook and trembled at the ill neighborhood. So hath been then more feared than harmed, my liege, 
for hear her but exampled by herself. Uh, when all her chivalry hath been in France, and she a mourning widow of her nobles, she hath herself not only well defended, but taken and impounded as a stray the King of Scots, whom she did send to France to fill King Edward's fame with prisoner kings, and make her chronicle as rich with praise as in the ooze and bottom of the sea with sunken wreck and sunless treasuries. But there's a saying, very old and true, if that you will, friends, win, then with Scotland first begin. For once the eagle England, being in prey, to her unguarded nest the weasel Scot comes sneaking and so sucks her princely eggs, playing the mouse in absence of the cat, tear and havoc more than she can eat. <laughs> it follows then the cat must stay at home. Yet that is but a crushed necessity. Since we have locks to safeguard necessaries and pretty traps and pretty traps to catch the petty thieves, while that the armed hand doth fight abroad, the advised head defends itself at home. For government, though high and low and lower put into parts, doth keep in one consent, congreeing in a full and natural close, like music. Therefore, doth heaven divide the state of man in divers functions, setting endeavor in continual motion to which is fixed as an aim or but. Obedience, for so work the honeybees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the act of order to a peopled kingdom. They have a king and officers of sorts, where some, like magistrates, correct at home, others, like merchants, venture trade abroad, Others, like soldiers armed in their stings, make boot upon the summer's velvet buds, which pillage they with merry march bring home to the tent royal of their emperor, who, busied in his, uh, busied in his majesty, surveys the singing masons building roofs of gold, the civil citizens kneading up the honey, the poor mechanic porters crowding in, their heavy burdens at his narrow gate, the sad-eyed justice with his surly hum, delivering o'er to executors pale. Uh, the lazy yawning drone, I this infer, that many things, having full reference to one consent, may work contrariously, as many arrows loose several ways. Come to one mark, as many ways meet in one town. As many fresh streams meet in one salt sea, as many lines close in the dial center, so many a thousand actions, once afoot, end in one purpose, and be all well born without defeat. Therefore to France, my liege, divide your happy England into four, wherefore, whereof take you one quarter into France, and you without shall make all Goliath shake, if we with thrice powers such left at home cannot defend our own doors from the dog, let us be worried and our nation lose the name of hardness, hardiness and policy. Mm. Call in the messengers sent from the Dauphin. Exit some attendants. Now are we well resolved? And by God, help, and yours, the noble sinews of our power, France being ours, will bend it to our awe, or break it to all pieces. Or there will sit, ruling at large and ample empery, or France and all her almost kingly dukedoms, or lay these bones in an unworthy burn, tombless with no remembrance over them. Either our history shall with full mouth speak freely of our acts, or else our grave, like Turkish mute, shall have a tongueless mouth, not worshipped with a waxen epitaph. Enter ambassadors of France. 
Now are we well prepared to know the pleasure of our fair cousin, Dauphin, for we hear your greeting is from him, not from the king. May it please your majesty to give us leave freely to render what we have in charge, or shall we uh, sparingly show you off, show you far off the, the Dauphin's meaning and uh, our embassy? We are no tyrant, but a Christian king, under whose grace our passion is as subject as our wretches fettered in our prisons. Therefore, with frank and with uncurbed plainness, tell us the Dauphin's mind. Thus then, if you, your highness, lately sending into France, did claim some certain uh, dukedoms in the right of your great predecessor, King Edward III. In end, mm, Tori's frozen. Let's just assume she went into French right now. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I guess Scott maybe pick up. You the cannot end. revel into Duke Dom's death. Oh no, what happened? Am I continuing? I am continuing. He therefore sends you, meter for your spirit, this ton of treasure, and in lieu of this, desires you let the Duke Dom's that you claim hear no more of you. This the Dauphin speaks. What treasures, Uncle? False, my liege. Tennis balls. We are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us. His present and your pains we thank you for. When we have marched our rackets to these balls, we will in France, by God's grace, play a set, shall strike his father's crown into the hazard. Tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases. And we understand him well, how he comes o'er us with our wilder days, not measuring what use we made of them. We never valued this poor seat of England, and therefore living hence did give ourselves to barbarous license, as tis ever common that men are merriest when they are from home. But Tell the Dauphin, I will keep my state. Be like a king and show my sails of greatness when I do rouse me in my throne of France. For that I have laid by my majesty and plotted like a man for working days, but I will rise there with so full a glory that I will dazzle all the eyes of France. Yea, strike the Dauphin blind to look on us. And tell the pleasant prince, this mock of his hath turned his balls to gunstones, and his soul shall stand sore charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with them. For many a thousand widows shall this mock, mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down, and some are yet ungotten and unborn that shall have cause to curse the Dauphin's scorn. 
This lies all within the will of God, to whom I do appeal, and in whose name tell you the Dauphin, I am coming on, to avenge me as I may, and to put forth my rightful hand in a well-hollowed cause. So get you hence, in peace, and tell the Dauphin his jest will savor, but of shallow wit. When thousands weep, more than did laugh at it. Convey them with safe conduct. There you go. Exunt ambassadors. <clears throat> this was a merry message. We hope to make the sender blush at it. <laughs> Therefore, lords, omit no happy hour that my give furtherance to our expedition. For we have now no thought in us but France. Save those to God that run before our business. Therefore, let our proportions for these wars be soon collected and all things thought upon that may with reasonable swiftness add more feathers to our wings. For God before will chide this dauphin at his father's door. Therefore, let every man now task his thought that this fair action may on foot be brought. Exunt flourish. Act two, prologue, enter chorus. Now all the youths of England are on fire, and silken dalliance in the wardrobe lies. Now thrive the armorers, and honor's thought reigns solely in the breast of every man. They sell the pasture now to buy the horse, following the mirror of all Christian kings with winged heels as English mercuries for now sits expectation in the air and hides a sword from hilts unto the point with crowns imperial crowns and coronets promised to Henry and his followers the French advised by good intelligence of this most dreadful preparation shake in their fear with pale policy seek to divert and with pale policy, seek to divert the English purposes. Oh, England, model to thy inward greatness. Like little body with a mighty heart, what mightst thou do that honor would thee do were all thy children kind and natural? But see thy fault. France hath in thee found out a nest of hollow bosoms, which he fills with treacherous crowns, and three corrupted men, one Richard, Earl of Cambridge, and the second Henry, Lord Scroop of Masham, and the third Sir Thomas Grey, Knight of Northumberland, have for the guilt of France. <laughs> Guilt indeed, confirmed conspiracy with fearful France, and by their hands this grace of kings must die if hell and treason hold their promises ere he take ship for France and in Southampton. Linger your patience on, and we'll digest the abuse of distance, force a play. The sum is paid, 
the traitors are agreed. The king is set from London, and the scene is now transported, gentles, to, to Southampton. There is the playhouse now. There must you sit. And thence, from France, shall we convey you safe and bring you back, charming the narrow seas to give you gentle pass. For if we may, we'll not offend one stomach with our play. But till the king come forth, and not till then, until Southampton, do we shift our scene. Exit. Scene one, London, a street. Enter Corporal Nim and Lieutenant Bardolph. Well met, Corporal Nim. Tomorrow, Lieutenant Bardolph. What? Our ancient pistol and new friends yet? For my part, I care not. I say little, but when time shall serve, there shall be smiles. But that shall be it as it may. I dare not fight, but I will wink and hold out mine iron. It is a simple one, but what though? It will toast cheese, and it will endure cold as another man's sword will. And there's an end. I will bestow a breakfast to make you friends, and we'll be all three a sworn brothers to France. Let it be so good, Corporal Nim. Faith, I will live so long as I may, not the certain of it. But when I cannot live any longer, I will do as I may. That is my rest. That is the rendezvous of it. It is certain, Corporal, that he is married to Nell. Quickly. And certainly she did you did you wrong, for you were troth plight to her. I cannot tell. Things must be as they may. Men, men may sleep, and they may have their throats about them at that time. And some say knives have edges. It must be as it may. Though patience be a tired mare, yet she will plod. There must be conclusions. Well, I cannot tell. Enter Pistol and Hostess, Mistress Quickly. Here comes Ancient Pistol and his wife. Good, Corporal, be patient here. How now, mine host pistol? Face tight, callest thou me host? Now by this hand I swear I scorn the term, nor shall my Nell keep lodgers. No, by my troth, not long, for we cannot lodge and board a dozen or fourteen gentlewomen that live honestly by the prick of their needles, but it will be thought we keep a body house straight. Nim and pistol draw. Oh, well, a day, lady, if he be not drawn now. We shall see willful adultery and murder committed. Good lieutenant, good corporal, offer nothing here. Pish. Pish for thee, Iceland dog, thou prick-eared cur of Iceland. Good corporal Nim, show thy valor and put up your sword. Will you shrug off? I would have you solace. Solace, egregious dog. Oh, viper vile, the solace in thy most mervalous face, the solace in thy teeth and in thy throat and in thy hateful lungs, yea, in thy maw, purdy, and which is worse, within thy nasty mouth. I do retort the solace in thy bowels, for I can take, and pistol's cock is up, and flashing fire will follow. Oh, I am not a barbison. You cannot conjure me. I have a... I have in humor to knock you indifferently well. If you grow foul with me, Pistol, I will score you with my rapier, as I may in fair terms. If you would walk off, I would prick your guts a little, in good terms, as I may. And that's the humor of it. Oh, braggart, vile, and damned furious white. The grave doth gape, and doting death is near. Therefore, exhale. Hear me? 
Hear me what I say. He that strikes the first stroke, I'll run him up to the hilt as I am a soldier. Draws. An oath of mickle might, and fury shall abate. Give me thy fist, thy forefoot to me give. Thy spirits are most tall. I will cut thy throat one time or other in fair terms. That is the humor of it. Couple a gorge, that is the word. I thee defy again. O hound of Crete, thinkest thou my spouse to get? No. To the spittle go, and from the powdering tub of infamy, fetch forth the laser kite of Cressid's kind. Doll Tearsheet, she by name, and her espouse. I have, and I will hold, the quondam quickly for the only she. And Pauka, that's enough. Go to. Enter the boy. Mine hook pistol. You must come to my master, and you hostess. He is very sick and would to bed. Good Bardolf, put thy face between his sheets, and do the office of a warming pan. Faith, he's very ill. Away, you rogue! By my troth, he'll yield the crow a pudding one of these days. The king has killed his heart. Good husband, come home presently. Exit hostess and boy. Come. Shall I make you two friends? We must have friends together. Why the devil should we keep knives to cut one another's throats? Let floods or swell and fiends for food howl on. You'll pay me the eight shillings I want of you at betting. Base is the slave that pays. Now, that now I will have. That's the humor of it. As manhood shall compound, push home. They draw. By this sword. He that makes the first thrust, I'll kill him. By the sword, I will. Sword is an oath, and oaths must have their course. Corporal Nim, and thou wilt be friends. Be friends, and thou wilt not? Why, then, be enemies with me, too. Prithee, put up! I shall have my eight shillings. I want of you at betting. A noble shalt thou have, and present pay. And liquor, likewise, will I give to thee. And friendship shall combine, and brotherhood. I'll live by Nim, and Nim shall live by me. Is not this just? For I shall subtler be unto the camp, and prophets will accrue. Give me thy hand. I shall have my noble. In cash, most justly paid. Well then, that's the humor of it. Re-enter hostess. As ever you came of women, come in quickly to Sir John. A poor heart. He is so shaked of a burning quotidian tertian that it is that is most lamentable to behold. Sweet men come to him. King have run bad humors on the night. Not the even of it. Nim, thou hast spoke the right. His heart is fracted and corroborate. The king is a good king, but it must be as it may. He passes some humors and careers. Let us condole the night. For lambkins we will live. Scene two, Southampton, a council chamber. Enter Exeter, Bedford, and Westmoreland. For God, his grace is bold to trust these traitors. They shall be apprehended by and by. How smooth and even they do bear themselves, as if allegiance in their bosoms sat, crowned with faith and constant loyalty. The king hath note of all that they intend by interception which they dream not of. Nay, but the man that was his bedfellow, whom he hath dulled and cloyed with gracious favors, that he should... For a foreign purse, so sell his sovereign's life to death and treachery. 
Trumpet sound. Enter King Henry V's group, Cambridge, Grey, and attendants. Now sits the wind fair, and we will aboard. My Lord of Cambridge, and my King Lord of Masham, and you, my gentle knight, give me your thoughts. Think you not that the powers we bear with us will cut their passage through the forces of France, doing the execution in the act for which we have in head assembled them? No doubt, my liege, if each man do his best. I doubt not that, since we are well persuaded. We carry not a heart with us from hence that grows not in a fair consent with ours, nor leave not one behind that doth not wish success and conquest to attend on us. Never was a monarch better feared and loved than is your majesty. There's not, I think, a subject that sits in heart grief and uneasiness under the sweet shade of your government. True. Those that were your father's enemies have steeped their galls in honey and do serve you with hearts creative duty and zeal. We therefore have great cause of thankfulness and shall forget the office of our hand sooner than quittance of desert and merriment according to the weight and worthiness. So service shall with steel sinews toil, and labor shall refresh itself with hope to do your grace incessant services. We judge no less. Uncle of Exeter, enlarge the man committed yesterday that railed against our person. We consider it was excess of wine that was set on him, and on his more advice, we pardon him. That's mercy, but too much security. Let him be punished, sovereign, lest example breed by his sufferance more of such kind. Oh, let us yet be merciful. So may your highness, and yet punish too. Sir, you show great mercy if you give him life after the taste of much correction. Alas, your too much love and care for me are heavy orisons against this poor wretch. If little faults proceeding on distemper shall not be winked at, how shall we stretch our eye then when capital crimes, chewed, swallowed, and digested, appear before us? We'll yet enlarge that man, though Cambridge, Scroop, and Gray, in their dear care and tender preservation of our person, would have him punished. And now, to our French causes, who are the late commissions? I won, my lord. Your highness bade me ask for it today. So did you me, my liege. And I, my royal sovereign. Then, Richard, Earl of Cambridge, there is yours. There yours, Lord Scroop of Masham, and Sir Knight Grey of Northumberland, this same is yours. Read them, and know I know your worthiness. My Lord of Westmoreland and Uncle Exeter, we will aboard tonight. Why, right, how now, gentlemen? What see you in those papers that you lose so much complexion? Look ye how they change. Their cheeks are paper. Why, what read you there that hath so cowarded and chased your blood out of appearance? I do confess my fault, and do submit me to your highness's mercy. To which, to which we, all we all appeal. Well said. The mercy that was quick in us but late by your own counsel is suppressed and killed. You must not dare for shame to talk of mercy for your own reasons turn into your bosoms as dogs upon their masters, worrying you. See you, my princes and my noble peers, these English monsters. My lord of Cambridge here, 
You know how apt our love was to accord to furnish him with all appurtenance belonging to his honor. And this man hath for a few light crowns lightly conspired and sworn unto the practices of France to kill us here in Hampton, to the which this night, no less for bounty bound to us than Cambridge's, hath likewise sworn. But oh, what shall I say to thee, Lord Scroop? Thou cruel, ingrateful, savage, and inhuman creature, thou that didst bear the key of all my counsels, that knewest the very bottom of my soul, that almost mightst have coined me into gold, wouldst thou have practiced on me for thy use. May it be possible that foreign hire could cut out of the exact one spark of evil that might annoy my finger? Tis so strange that though the truth of it stands off as gross as black and white, my eye will scarcely see it. Treason and murder ever kept together as two yoke devils sworn to either purpose, working so grossly in a natural cause that admiration did not whoop at them. But thou, against all proportion, didst bring in wonder to wait on treason and murder, and whatsoever cunning fiend it was that wrought upon thee so preposterously hath got the voice in hell for excellence. All other devils that suggest by treasons do botch and bungle up damnation with patches, colors, and with forms being fetched from glistening semblances of piety. But he that tempered thee, bade thee stand up, gave thee no instant why thou shouldst do treason, unless to dub thee with the name of traitor. If that same demon hath gulled thee thus, should with his lion gate walk the whole world, he might return to vasty Tartar back and tell the legions, I can never win a soul so easy as that Englishman's. Oh, how hast thou with jealousy infected the sweetness of affiance? Show men dutiful? Why, so didst thou. See them grave and learned? Why, so didst thou. Come they of noble family? Why, so didst thou. See them religious? Why, so didst thou. Or are they sparing diet, free from gross passion or of mirth or anger, constant in spirit, not swerving with the blood, garnished and decked in modest compliment, not working with the eye without the ear, and but in perjured judgment, trusting neither? Such and so finely bolted didst thou see, and thus thy fall hath left a kind of blot to mark the full fraught of man and best endued with some suspicion. I will weep for thee, for this revolt of thine, methinks, is like another man, another fall of man. Their faults are open. Arrest them to the answer of the law, and God acquit them of their practices. I arrest thee of high treason by the name of Richard, Earl of Cambridge. I arrest thee of high treason by the name of Henry, Lord Scroop of Masham. I arrest thee of high treason by the name of Thomas Gray, Knight of Northumberland. Our purposes God justly hath discovered, and I repent my fault more than my death, which I beseech your highness to forgive, although my body pay the price of it. 
for me, the gold of France did not seduce, although I did admit it as a motive the sooner to effect what I intended. But God be thanked for prevention, which I in sufferance heartily will rejoice, beseeching God and you to pardon me. Never did faithful subject more rejoice at the discovery of most dangerous treason than I do at this hour joy o'er myself, prevented from a damned enterprise, my fault, but not my body. Pardon, sovereign. God quit you in his mercy. Hear your sentence. You have conspired against your royal person, joined with an enemy proclaimed, and from his coffers received the golden earnest of our deaths, wherein you would have sold your king to slaughter, his princes and his peers to servitude, his subjects to oppression and contempt, and his whole kingdom into desolation. Touching our person seek we no revenge, but we are kingdom's safety must so tender, whose ruin you have sought, that to her laws we do deliver you. Get you therefore heads, poor miserable wretches, to your death. The taste whereof God of his mercy give you patience to endure, and true repentance of all your... Bear them hence. Exit Cambridge, Scroop and Gray, guarded. Now, lords, for France, the enterprise whereof shall be to you as us, like glorious, we doubt not, a fair and lucky war, since God so graciously hath brought to light this dangerous treason lurking in our way, to hinder our beginnings, we doubt not now, but every rub is smoothed on our way. Then forth, dear countrymen, let us deliver our puissant into the hand of God, putting it straight in expedition, Cheerly to see the signs of war advance. No king of England, if not king of France. Exent. Scene three, London before a tavern. Enter Pistol, Hostess, Nim, Bardolph, and Boy. Prithee, honey, sweet husband, let me bring thee to stains. No, for my manly heart doth yearn. Bardolph, be blithe. Nim, rouse thy vaunting veins. Boy, bristle thy courage up for Falstaff. He is dead, and we must yearn, therefore. Would I were with him, wheresomever he is, either in heaven or in hell. Nay, sure, he's not in hell. He's in Arthur's bosom, if ever man went to Arthur's bosom. It made a finer end and went away, and it had been any Christendom child. Aparted even just between twelve and one. Even at the turning of the tide, for after I saw him fumble with the sheets and play with flowers and smile upon his fingers' ends, I knew there was but one way, for his nose was as sharp as a pen and a babbled of green fields. How now, Sir John, quoth I, what man be a good cheer? And so I cried out, God, 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 three or four times. Now I to comfort him bid him a should not think, I bid him a should not think of God. I hoped there was no need to trouble himself with any such thoughts yet. So I bade me lay more clothes at it on his feet. I put my hand into the bed and felt them. So they were as cold as any stone. Then I felt, on, felt to his knees, and they were as cold as any stone. And so upward and upward, and all was as cold as any stone. Say, 
say he cried out of sack? Aye, that it did. And of women? Nay, that it did not. I could never abide carnation. Twas a color he never liked. I said once the devil would have him about women. I did in some sort indeed handle women, but then he was rheumatic and talked of the whore of Babylon. Do you not remember? I saw a flea stick upon Bardolph's nose, and I said it was a black soul burning in hellfire. Well, that fuel is gone that maintained that fire. That's all the riches I got in his service. Um, shall we shog? The king shall be, will be gone from Southampton. Come, let's away. My love, give me thy lips. Look to my chattels and my movables. Let senses rule. The word is pitch and pay. Trust none, for oaths are straws, men's faiths are wafer cakes, and hold fast is the only dog, my duck. Therefore, cave to be thy counselor. Go clear thy crystals. Yoke fellows in arms, let us to France. Let horse, like horse leeches, my boys, to suck, to suck, the very blood to suck. And that's what unwholesome food they say. Touch her soft mouth and march. Farewell, hostess. Kissing her. I cannot kiss. That is the humor of it, but adieu. Let housewifery appear. Keep close, I thee command. Farewell, adieu. Exit. Scene four, France, the king's palace. Flourish. Enter the French king, the Dauphin, the Dukes of Berry and Bretagne, the constable and others. Thus comes the English with full power upon us. And more than carefully, it has concerns to answer royally in our defenses. Therefore, the Dukes of Berry and of Bretagne, of Brabant and of Orléans shall make forth, and you, Prince Dauphin, with all swift dispatch, to line and new repair our towns of war with men of courage and with means defendant. For England, his approaches makes as fierce as waters to the sucking of a gulf. It fits us then to be as provident as fear may teach us out of late examples left by the fatal and neglected English upon our fields. My most redoubted father, it is uh, most meet we arm us against the foe, for peace itself should not uh, so dull a kingdom, the war, no, no known quarrel were in question, but that the fences, musters, populations uh, should be maintained, assembled, and collected, as well were an expectation. Therefore, I say, tis a Meet we all go forth to view the sick and feeble parts of France, and let us do it with no show of fear. No, with a no more than if we heard that uh, England were busied with the wits and Morristance. For my good liege, uh, she is so idly kinged, her scepter so uh, fantastically borne by a Vain, giddy, shallow, humorous youth that fear attends her not. Oh, peace, Prince Dauphin. You are too much mistaken in this king. 
Question your grace, the late ambassadors, with what great state he heard their embassy, how well supplied with noble counselors, how modest in exception, and withal how terrible in constant resolution. And you shall find his vanities forspent were but the outside of the Roman Brutus, covering discretion with a coat of folly as gardeners do with ordure hide those roots that shall first spring and be most delicate. Well, tis not so, my lord, I constable. But uh, we think it so, it is no matter. In cases of defense, tis um, best to wear the enemy more mighty than he seems. So the proportions of defense are filled, which are very weak or uh, Weakened projection doth black a miser spoil his coat with a scattering a little cloth. Think we, King Harry, strong. And princes, look you strongly armed to meet him. The kindred of him hath been fleshed upon us, and he is bred out of that bloody strain that haunted us in our familiar paths. Witness our too much memorable shame when Cressy battle fatally was struck and all our princes captived by the hand of that black name, Edward, Black Prince of Wales. Whilst that his mountain sire on mountain standing, up in the air, crowned with the golden sun, saw his heroical seed and smiled to see him, mangle the work of nature and deface the patterns that by God and by French fathers had 20 years been made. This is a stem of that victorious stock and let us fear the native mightiness and fate of him. Enter a messenger. Uh, ambassadors from Harry, King of England, do crave admittance to your majesty. We'll give them present audience. Go and bring them. Exit messenger and certain lords. You see, this chase is hotly followed, friends. <laughs> Turn head and stop her suit. For coward dogs must spend their months when what they seem to threaten runs far before them. Good my sovereign, take up the English short and let them know of what a monarchy you are the head. Self-love, my liege, is not so vile a sin as self-neglecting. Re-enter lords with Exeter in train. From our brother England? From him. And thus he greets your majesty. He wills you, in the name of God Almighty, that you divest yourself and lay apart the borrowed glories that by gift of heaven, by law of nature and of nations, long to him and to his heirs, namely the crown and all wide-stretched honors that pertain by custom and the ordinance of times upon the crown of France. That you may know, tis no sinister nor no awkward claim, picked from the wormholes of long-vanished days, nor from the dust of old oblivion raked. He sends you this most memorable line, in every branch truly demonstrative, willing to overlook this pedigree. And when you find him evenly derived from his most famed of famous ancestors, Edward III, he bids you then resign your crown and kingdom, indirectly held from him the native and true child. Or else what follows? bloody constraint for if you hide the crown even in your hearts there will he rake for it therefore 
in fierce tempest is he coming, in thunder and an earthquake, like a Jove, that if requiring fail, he will compel, and bids you, in the bowels of the Lord, deliver up the crown, and to take mercy on the poor souls for whom this hungry war opens his vasty jaws, and on your head turning the, win the widow's tears, the orphan's cries, the dead men's blood, the pining maiden's groans, for husbands, fathers, and betrothed lovers that shall be swallowed in this controversy. This is his claim, his threatening, and my message. Unless the Dauphin be in presence here, to whom expressly I bring greeting to. For us, we will consider of this further. Tomorrow shall you bear our full intent back to our brother England. For the Dauphin, I stand here for him. What uh, to him from England? <clears throat> Scorn and defiance. Slight regard, contempt, and anything that may not misbecome the, the mighty sender doth he prize you at. Thus says my king, and if your father's highness do not, in grant all, all of all demands at large, sweeten the bitter mock you sent his majesty. He'll call you to so hot an answer of it that caves and woomy voltages of France shall chide your trespass and return your mock in second accent of his ordinance. <laughs> Say. If my father render fair return, it is against my will. For I desire nothing but odds with England. To that end, as a uh, matching to his youth and vanity, did I present him with the Paris balls? He'll make your Paris Louvre shake for it. We're at the mistress court of mighty Europe, and be assured, you'll find a difference, as we, his subjects, have in wonder found between the promise of his greener days and these he masters now. Now he weighs time even to the utmost grain that you shall read in your own losses if he stay in France. Tomorrow shall you know our mind at full. Dispatch us with all speed, lest that our king come here himself to question our delay, for he is footed in this land already. You shall soon, you shall be soon dispatched with fair conditions. A night is but small breath and little pause to answer matters of this consequence. Flourish, exeunt. Act three, prologue, enter chorus. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> Whew. Thus, with imagined wing, our swift scene flies in motion of no less celerity than that of thought. Suppose that you have seen the well-appointed king at Hampton Pier embark his royalty and his brave fleet with silken streamers, the young Phoebus fanning. Play with your fancies. And in them behold upon the hempen tackle ship boys climbing. Hear the shrill whistle which doth order give to sounds confused. Behold the threatened sails born with the invisible and creeping wind draw the huge bottoms of the furrowed sea breasting the lofty surge. Oh, do but 
think you stand upon the ravage and behold a city on the inconstant billows dancing. For so appears this fleet majestical, holding due course to Hartford. Follow, follow, grapple your minds to sternage of this navy and leave your England as dead midnight still, guarded with grandsires, babies, and old women, either past or not arrived to pith and puissance. For who is he whose chin is but enriched with one appearing hair that will not follow these cold and choice-drawn cavaliers to France. Work, work your thoughts, and therein see a siege. Behold the, ordin the ordinance on their carriages with fatal mouths gaping on girded harfloor. Suppose the ambassador from the French comes back, tells Harry that the king doth offer him Catherine as his daughter, and with her to dowry some petty and unprofitable dukedoms. The offer likes not, and the nimble gunner with Linstock now, the devilish cannon touches. Alarm and chambers go, go off. <laughs> Down goes all before them. Still be kind and eke out our performance with your mind. Exit. Scene one, France, before Harfleur. Alarum, enter King Henry, Exeter, Bedford, Gloucester, and soldiers with scaling ladders. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. We'll close the wall up with our English dead. In peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility, but when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage, and lend the eye a terrible aspect. Let cry through the portage of the head like a brass cannon. Let the brow overwhelm it, as fearfully as doth a gallant rock, o'erhang and jutty his confounded base, swilled in with the wild and wasteful ocean. Now set the teeth, and stretch the nostril wide. Hold hard the breath, and bend up every spirit to his full height. On, on, you noblest English, whose blood is cut from the fathers of war-proof, eh? Fathers that, like so many Alexanders, have in these parts from morn till even fought and seed their swords for lack of argument. Dishonor not your mothers. No attest that those whom you called fathers did forget you. Be copying out a man of grosser blood and teach them how to war. And you, good yeoman, whose limbs were made in England, show us here the medal of your pasture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding, which I doubt not. There is none of you so mean and base and hath not noble luster in your eyes. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit. Now upon this charge, cry, God for Harry, England, and St. George! Exunt. Alarm and chambers go off. Scene two, the same. Enter Nim, Bardolph, Pistol, and Boy. On! 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 On to the breach! To the breach! Hey, Corporal. Hey, 
And I'm actually too hot. And for my own part, I am not a case of lives. The humor of it is too hot. And it's a very plain song of it. The plain song is most just. For humanity to abound. Knocks go and come. God's vassals drop and die. And sword and shield in bloody field doth win immortal fame. and alehouse in London, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. And I, if wishes would prevail with me, my purposes should not fail with me, and thither would I hie. As duly, but not as truly, as bird doth sing on bow. Enter Fluellen. Up to the breach, you dogs! Avant, you cullions! Driving them forward. Be merciful, great duke, to men of mold. Abate thy rage, abate thy manly rage. Abate thy rage, great duke. Good Bawcock, bait thy rage. Use lenity, sweet Chuck. These be good humors. Her honor wins bad humors. Exempt all but boy, who's going to speak very loudly. <laughs> as young as I am, I have observed these swashers. I am boy to them all three, but all they three, though they would serve me, could not be man to me. For indeed, three such antics do not amount to a man. For Bardolph, he is white-livered and red-faced, by the means whereof a face it out, but fights not. For Pistol, he hath a killing tongue and a quiet sword, by the means whereof a breaks words and keeps whole weapons. For Nim, he hath heard that men of few words are the best men, and therefore he scorns to say his prayers, lest he should be thought a coward, but his few bad words are matched with his few good deeds, for he never broke any man's head but his own, and that was, that was against a post when he was drunk. They will steal anything and call it purchase. Bardoff stole a loot case, bore it 12 leagues, and sold it for three halfpence. Nim and Bardoff are sworn brothers in filching, and in Calais they stole a fire shovel. I knew by that piece of service the men would carry coals. They would have me as familiar with men's pockets as their gloves or their handkerchers, which makes much, much against my manhood if I should take from another's pocket to put into mine, for it is plain pocketing up of wrongs. I must leave them and seek some better service. Their villainy goes against my weak stomach, and therefore I must cast it up. Exit. Re-enter Fluellen Gower following. Captain Fluellen, you must come presently to the mines. The Duke of Gloucester would speak with you. To the mines? Tell you the Duke, it is not so good to come to the mines. <clears throat> For look you, the mines is not according to the disciplines of the war. The cavities of it is not sufficient. <sighs> For look you, the adversary, you may say, discuss unto the Duke, look you, is digged himself four yards under the countermines. By Jesu, I think I will plow up all if there is not better direction. The Duke of Gloucester, to whom the order of the siege is given, is altogether directed by an Irishman, a very valiant gentleman in faith. It is Captain MacMorris, is it not? I think it be. By Cheshu, he is an ass as in the world. I will verify as much in his beard. He has no more directions in the true disciplines of the wards, look you, of the Roman disciplines than is a puppy dog. Enter McMorris and Captain Jamie. 
Here it comes. And the Scots captain, Captain Jamie, with him. Captain Jamie is a marvellous fowler's gentleman, that is certain. And of great expedition and knowledge in the ancient wars, upon my particular knowledge of his direction. By Jeshu, he will maintain his argument as well as any military man in the world in the disciplines of the pristine wars of the Romans. I say good day, Captain Flewellen. Good day, dear worship, good Captain James. How now, Captain McMorris? Have you quit the mines? Have the pioneers given o'er? By Christ, la! Tis, ish, tish ill done. Oh, I'm bailing on the accent. By <laughs> Christ, la! Tish ill done. The work is give over. The trumpets sound the retreat. By my hand, I swear, and my father's soul, the work is done. It ish give over. I would have blowed up the town, so Christ save me, law, in an hour. Oh, tish ill done, tish ill done. By my hand, tish ill done. Captain McMorris, I beseech you now, will you vouchsafe me, look you, a few disputations with you as partly touching or concerning the disciplines of the war, the Roman wars in the way of argument, look you, and friendly communication. Partly to satisfy my opinion, and partly for the satisfaction, look you, of my mind, as touching the direction of the military discipline, that is the point. It shall be very good, good faith, good captain's bath. I shall quit you and get with good leave, as I pick, as I may pick occasion, that's all I marry. It is no time to discourse, so Christ save me. The day is hot, and the weather, and the wars, and the king, and the dukes, it is no time to discourse. The town is beseeched, and the trumpet call us to breach, and we talk and be Christ, do nothing. Tis shame for us all. So God, same. Tis shame to stand still, it is shame by my hand, and there is throats to be cut, and works to be done, and there is nothing done, so Christ save me, law! By the mess ere these eyes of mine take themselves to slumber, I'll do good I'll do good service, or I'll lig a grand for it, <laughs> I or go to death, and I'll pay to pay it as valorously as I may. That shall I surely do. That is the breath in the long. Mary, I would full fain hear some question tween you tway. Captain McMorris, I think, look you, under your correction, there is not many of your nation. Of my nation? What is my nation? Ish a villain and a bastard and a knave and a rascal? What is my nation? Who talks of my nation? Look you, if you take the matter otherwise, then it is meant, Captain McMorris, peradventure I shall think you do not use me with the affability as in discretion you ought to use me, look you. Being as good a man as yourself, both in the disciplines of the war and in the derivation of my birth and in other particularities. I do not know you so good a man as myself, so Christ save me, I will cut off your head. Gentlemen, both. You will mistake each other. Ah, uh, that's a foul fault. A parley sounded. The town sounds a parley. Captain McMorris, when there is more better opportunity to be required, look you, I will be so bold as to tell you I know the disciplines of war, and there is an end. Exit. Scene three, the same, before the gates. The governor and some citizens on the walls. The English forces below. Enter King Henry and his train. <clears throat> How yet resolves the governor of the town? 
This is the latest parlay, we will admit, therefore, to our best mercy. Give yourselves, or like to men proud of destruction, defy us to our worst. For as I am a soldier, a name that is my thoughts becomes me best. If I begin the battery once again, I will not leave the half-achieved Harfloor till in her ashes she lie buried. The gates of mercy shall be all shut up. And the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of bloody hand shall rage with conscience white as hell, knowing like grass your fresh, fair virgins and your flowering infants. What is it then to me if impious war arrayed in flames like to the prince of fiends do with his smirch complexed in all fell feet? and linked to waste and desolation. What is it to me when you yourselves are caused, if your pure maidens fall into the hand of heart, enforcing violation? What rain can hold licentious wickedness when down the hill he holds his fierce career? We may as bootless spend our vain command upon the enraged soldiers in their spoil as send precepts to the Leviathan to come ashore. Therefore, you men of Harfleur, take pity of your town and of your people. Whilst yet my soldiers are in my command, whilst yet the cool and distemper winds of grace o'erblows the filthy and contagious clouds of petty murder, spoil and villainy. If not, why, in a moment look to see the blind and bloody soldier with foul hand defile the locks of your shrill shrieking daughters, your fathers taken by the silver beards and their most reverend heads dashed to the walls, your naked infants spitted upon spikes, whilst the mad mothers with their howls confused do break the clouds, as did the wise of Jewry at Herod's bloody hunting slaughtermen. What say you? Will you yield and avoid, or guilty in defense be thus destroyed? Our expectation hath this day an end. The Dauphin, whom of succors we entreated, returns us and his powers are not yet ready to raise so great a siege. Therefore, great king, we yield our town and lives to thy soft mercy. Enter our gates, dispose of us and ours, for we are no longer our defensible. Open your gates. Come, Uncle Exeter, go you forth, enter Harfleur. There remain and fortify it strongly against the French. Use mercy to them all. For us, dear uncle, winter coming on and sickness growing, upon your soldiers we will retire to Calais. Tonight, in Harfleur, we will be your guest. Tomorrow, for the march, we are addressed. Flourish, the king and his train enter the town. Scene four, the French king's palace enter Catherine and Alice. 
Alice, tu as été en Angleterre et tu parles bien la langue. Un peu, madame. Je te prie, m'enseigner. Il faut que j'apprends à parler. Comment appelez-vous la main en anglais? La main, elle est appelée euh, de hand. De hand. Et les doigts? Les doigts? Moi, je vois, j'oublie les doigts. Mais je, vais, je me souviendrai. Les doigts, je pense qu'ils sont appelés de fingre. Oui, oui, de fingre. Le main de hand, les doigts de fingre. Je pense que je suis le bon écolier. J'ai gagné deux mots en anglais, vitement. Comment appelez-vous les ongles? Les ongles? Nous les appelons des nails. Des nails. Écoutez, dis-moi si je parle bien. De hand, de fingers et de nails. C'est bien dit, madame. Il est fort pour l'anglais. Dis-moi l'anglais pour le bras. Des armes, madame. Et le coude? Des elbows. Des elbows. <rire> Je m'en fais la répétition de tous les mots que vous m'avez appris dès à présent. Il, il est trop difficile, madame, quand je pense. Excusez-moi, Alice. Écoutez. De hand, de fingers, de nails, de armes, de bilbo. De elbo, madame. Non! Seigneur Dieu, je m'oublie. De elbo. <rire> Comment appelez-vous le col? De nick, madame. De nick. Et le menton? De chin. Du sin. Le col, du nick. Le menton, du sin. Oui, sauf votre honneur. En vérité, vous prononcez les mots aussi droit que les natifs d'Angleterre. Je n'ai du point d'apprendre par la grâce de Dieu et un peu de temps. N'avez-vous pas déjà oublié ce que, vous, ce que je vous ai enseigné? Non, je réciterai à vous promptement. De hand, de fingre, de nails. De nails, madame. De nails, de armes, de elbow. Sauf votre honneur de elbow. Ainsi, dis-je, de elbow, de nick et du sin. Comment appelez-vous le pied et la robe? De foot, madame, et de con. De foot, de con. Oh, Seigneur Dieu! Ce sont mots de mauvaise, corruptible, gros et impudique et non pour les dames d'honneur d'usé. Je ne voudrais prononcer ce mot devant les seigneurs de France pour tout le monde. Fou! Le foot et le con. Néanmoins, je reciterai une autre fois ma leçon ensemble. De hand, de fingre, de nails, de armes, de elbow, de nick, de sin, de foot, du con. Excellent, madame! 
<rire> C'est assez pour une fois. Allons-nous à dîner. Excellent. Scene five, the same. Enter the King of France, the Dauphin, the Duke of Bourbon, the Constable of France, and others. Just certain he hath passed the river Somme. And if he be not fought with all, my lord, let us not live in France. Let us quit all and give our vineyards to a barbarous people. Oh, Dieu vivant! Shall I have your sprays of us, the emptying of our father's luxury, our scions put in wild and savage spots? Wild and savage stalks spirit up so suddenly into the clouds and overlook their grafters? Norman, but blasted Normans, Norman bastard, more de la vie. If they march along on fought with all, I, but I will sell my dukedom to buy a slobbery in a dirty farm in that nookshot Nile of Albion. Dieu de bataille. Where have they this metal? Is not their climate foggy, raw, and dull, on whom, as in despite the sun looks pale, killing their fruit with frowns? Can sodden water... A drench for stirring jades, their their barley broth decocked their cold blood to such valiant heat. And shall our quick blood, spirited with wine, seem frosty? Oh, for honor of our land, let, let us not hang like roping icicles upon our house's thatch, while the more frosty people sweat drops of gallant youth in our rich fields. Poor we may call them in their native lords. By faith and honor, our madams mock us and plainly say our metal is bred out and they will give their bodies to the lust of English youth to new-store France with bastard warriors. They bid us to the English dancing schools and teach Levolta's high and swift corantos and saying our grace is only in our heels and that we are most lofty runaways. Where is Montjoy the herald? Speed immense. Let him greet England with our sharp defiance. Up, princess, and with spirit of honor edged, more sharper than your swords, high to the field. Charles de la Breth, high constable of France. You, Dukes of Orléans, Bourbon and of Berry, Alençon, Brabant, Bar and Burgundy, Jacques Chatelain, Ramberes, Valdemont, Beaumont, Grand Pré, Roussy and Falkenberg, Foix, Lestral, Boutical and Charlois. High Dukes, great princes, barons, lords and knights, for your great seats, now quit you of great shames. Bar, hairy England that sweeps through our land with pennons painted in the blood of Harfleur. Rush on his host as doth the melted snow upon the valleys, whose low vassal seat the Alps doth spit and void his room upon. Go down upon him. You have power enough. And in a captive chariot into Rouen, bring him our prisoner. This becomes the great. Sorry I am, his numbers are so few. His soldiers sick and famished in their march, for I am sure when he shall see our army, He'll drop his heart into the sink of fear and for achievement offer us his ransom. Therefore, Lord Constable, haste on Montjoy. 
and let him say to England that we send to know what willing ransom he will give. Prince Dauphin, you shall stay with us in Rouen. No, so I do beseech your majesty. Be patient, for you shall remain with us. Now forth, Lord Constable and Princes all, and quickly bring us word of England's fall. Exit. Scene six, the English camp, camp in Picardy. Enter Gower and Fluellen meeting. How now, Captain Fluellen, come you from the bridge? I assure you there is very excellent services committed at the bridge. Is the Duke of Exeter safe? The Duke of Exeter is as magnanimous as Agamemnon, and a man that I love and honor with my soul and my heart and my duty and my life and my living and my uttermost power. He is not, God be praised and blessed, any hurt in the world, but keeps the bridge most valiantly with excellent discipline. There is an ancient lieutenant there at the bridge, I think in my very conscience he is as valiant a man as Mark Antony. He is a man of no estimation in the world, but did see him do as gallant service. What do you call him? He is called Ancient Pistol. I know him not. Enter Pistol. Here is the man. Captain, I be beseech to do me favors. The Duke of Exeter doth love thee well. I, I praise God, and I have merited some love at his hands. Bardolph, a soldier, firm and sound of heart, and of booksome valor, hath by cruel fate and giddy fortune's furious fickle wheel, that godless blind that stands upon the rolling restless stone. By your patience, ancient pistol, fortune is painted blind with a muffler for her eyes to signify to you that fortune is blind. And she is painted also with a wheel to signify to you, which is the moral of it, that she is turning and inconstant and mutability and variation. And her foot, look you, is fixed upon a spherical stone which rolls and rolls and rolls. In good truth, the poet makes a most excellent description of it. Fortune is an excellent moral. Fortune is Bardolph's foe and frowns on him, for he hath stolen a pax and hanged must be. A damn death, let gallows gape for dog, let men go free and let not hemp his windpipe suffocate. But Exeter hath given the doom of death for packs of little price. Therefore, go speak, the Duke will hear thy voice, and let not Bardolph's vital thread be cut with edge of penny cord and vile reproach. Speak, Captain, for his life, and I will thee requite. Ancient pistol, I do partly understand your meaning. Why then rejoice, therefore? Certainly, Ancient, it is not a thing to rejoice at. For if, look you, he were my brother, I would desire the Duke to use his good pleasure and put him to execution. For discipline ought to be used. Die and be damned and Figo for thy friendship. It is well. The fig of Spain. Exit. Very good. <sighs> Why, this is an errant counterfeit rascal. I remember him now, a bod and a cut purse. I'll assure you, he uttered a brave words at the bridge, as you shall see in a summer's day. But it is very well. What he has spoke to me, that is well, I warrant you, when time is served. Why, tis a gull, a fool, a rogue, that now and then goes to the wars to grace himself at his return into London under the form of a soldier. 
And such fellows are perfect in the great commander's names, and they will learn you by rote where services were done at such and such a sconce, at such a breach, at such a convoy. Who come off bravely? Who was shot? Who disgraced? What terms the enemy stood on? And this they con perfectly in the phrase of war, which they trick up with new turned oaths. And what a beard of the general's cut and a horrid suit of the camp will do among foaming bottles and ale-washed wits is wonderful to be thought on. But you must learn to know such slanders of the age, or else you may be marvelously mistook. I tell you what, Captain Gower, I do perceive he is not the man that he would gladly make sure to the world he is. If I find a hole in his coat, I will tell him my mind. Hark you, the king is coming. I must speak with him from the bridge. Drummond colors enter King Henry, Gloucester, and soldiers. God bless your majesty. Oh, I know Flewellen himself from the bridge. Aye, so please your majesty. The Duke of Exeter has very gallantly maintained the bridge. The French is gone off, look you, and there is gallant and most brave passages. Merrily, the adversary was have possession of the bridge, but he is enforced to retire, and the Duke of Exeter is master of the bridge. I can tell your majesty the Duke is a brave man. What men have you lost, Flewellen? The perdition of the adversary hath been very great, reasonable, great. Mary, for my part, I think the Duke hath lost never a man, but one that is like to be executed for robbing a church. One Bardolph, if your majesty know the man. His face is all bubuckles and welks and knobs and flames of fire, and his lips blows at his nose, and it is like a coal of fire, sometimes blue, sometimes red. But his nose is executed, and his fire's out. We would have all such offenders so cut off. And we give the express charge that in our marches through the country, there be nothing compelled from the villages, nothing taken but paid for. None of the French upbraided or abused in disdainful language. When lenity and cruelty pay play for a kingdom, the gentler gamester is the soonest winner. Tuck it, enter Montjoy. You know me by my habit. Well, then I know thee. What shall I know of thee? My master's mind. Unfold it. Thus says my king. Say thou to Harry of England. Though we seemed dead, we did but sleep. Advantage is a better soldier than rashness. Tell him we could have rebuked him at Harfleur but that we thought not good to bruise an injury till it were full ripe. Now we speak upon our cue, and our voice is imperial. England shall repent his folly, see his weakness, and admire our sufferance. Bid him therefore consider of his ransom, which must proportion the losses we have borne, the subjects we have lost, the disgrace we have digested, which in wait to re-answer, his pettiness would bow under. For our losses, his, ex his exchequer is too poor. For the effusion of our blood, the muster of his kingdom too faint a number. And for our disgrace, 
his own person kneeling at our feet, but a weak and worthless satisfaction. To this add defiance, and tell him for conclusion, he hath betrayed his followers, whose condemnation is pronounced. So far, my king and master, so much my office. What is thy name? I know thy quality. Montjoy. Thou dost thy office fairly. Turn thee back, and tell thy king, I do not seek him now, but could be willing to march on to Calais without impeachment, or to say the sooth, though tis no wisdom to confess so much unto an enemy of craft and vantage. My people are with sickness and much enfeebled, and my numbers lessened, and those few I have almost no better than so many French, who when they were in health, I tell thee, Harold, I thought upon one pair of English legs did march three Frenchmen. Yet forgive me, God, that I do brag thus. This your heir of France hath blown that vice in me. I must repent. Go, therefore. Tell thy master, here I am. My ransom is this frail and worthless trunk. My army but a weak and sickly guard. Yet God before, tell him, we will come on, though France himself and such another neighbor stand in our way. There's for thy labor. Montjoy, go bid thy master well advised himself. If we may pass, we will. If we be hindered, we shall your tawny ground, your red blood discolor. And so, Montjoy, fare you well. The sum of all our answer is but this. We would not seek a battle as we are, nor as we are, we say, we will not shun it. So tell your master. I shall deliver so. Thanks to your highness. Exit. I hope they will not come upon us now. We are in God's hands, brother, not in theirs. March you to the bridge. It now draws toward night beyond the river. We'll encamp ourselves. And on tomorrow, bid them march away. Exit. Scene seven, the French camp near Agincourt. Enter the Constable of France, the Lord Rambures, Orléans, Dauphin, and others. Cut. I have the best armor in the world. What it would be. You have an excellent armor. Must my horse have his due? It is the best horse of Europe. Will ever be morning? <clears throat> my, uh, my Lord of Orleans, my Lord High Constable, you talk of uh, horse and armor. You're as well provided of both as any prince in the world. <laughs> what a long night is this. I will not change my horse with any that treads on four passions. See, he bounds from the earth as if a... Uh, his entrails were hairs. Les cheveux were là. The pegasus. Je l'aimerais de vous. When I bestride him, I saw. I am a hawk. He trots the air, the earth sings. When he touches it, 
the basis tone of his hoof is more musical than a pipe of their mess. He's of the color of the nutmeg. And of the heat of the ginger. It is a beast for Perseus. His pure air and fire and the dull elements of earth and water never appear on him. But only in patient stillness, while his rider mounts him, he is indeed a horse. All you other jades, you make our beasts. Indeed, my lord, it is a most absolute and excellent horse. It is the prince of Palfrays. His neigh is like the bidding of a monarch, and his countenance enforces homage. More the man have no wit that cannot, from the rising of the lock to the lodging of the land, very deserved praise on my palfrey. It is a theme as fluent as the sea. Turn the sounds into eloquent tongues, and my horse is argument for them all. It is a subject for a sovereign to reason on, and for a sovereign sovereign to ride on. And for the world, familiar to us and unknown to lay apart, their particular functions and wonder at him. I once wrote a sonnet in his praise and began thus. Wonder of nature. I have heard a sonnet begin so to one's mistress. Then did they imitate? That you take a bow to my corsair for my horse is my mistress. Well, your mistress fares well. <laughs> Me well, which is the prescribed praise and perfection of good and particular mistress. Hey, for me thought yesterday, your mistress shrewdly shook your back. So perhaps did yours. Mine was not bridled. Oh, then belike she was old and gentle. And you rode like a kelm of Ireland, your French horse off, and in your straight saucers. You have a good judgment in horsemanship. Be warned by me, then, that they that ride so and ride not warily fall into foul bogs. I had rather my, have my horse to my mistress. I had as lief have my mistress a jade. <laughs> the constable, my mistress wears his own hair. I could make as true a boast as that if I had a stow to my mistress. The jeune et s'retourne son propre vomissement et le prêt l'avait à bobler de make us use of anything. Yet I do not use my horse for my mistress or any such proverb so little kin to the purpose. My Lord Constable, the armor that I saw in your tent tonight, are those stars or suns upon it? Stars, my Lord. Some of them uh, will fall tomorrow, I hope. And yet my sky shall not want. That uh, may be. For you bear many superfluously, and for more honor, far away. As your horse bears your praises, who would trot as well, or some of your brags dismounted? What I were able to load him with his desert, will it never be there? 
I will trot tomorrow a mile, and my way shall be paved with English faces. I will not say so, for fear I should be faced out of my way. But I would it were morning. But I would it were morning, for I would fain be about the ears of the English. Who will go to hazard with me for twenty prisoners? You must first go yourself to hazard ere you have them. Tis midnight. I'll go on myself. Exit. Dauphin longs for morning. He longs to eat the English. I think he will eat all he kills. By the white hand of my lady, he's a gallant prince. Swear by her foot that she may tread out the oath. It's simply the most active gentleman of France. Doing is activity, and he will still be doing. He never did harm that I heard of. Nor will do none tomorrow. He will keep that good name still. I know him to be valiant. I was told that by one that knows him better than you. <laughs> What's he? Mary. He told me so himself. And he said he cared not to know it. He needs not. It is no hidden virtue in him. By my faith, sir, but it is. Never any body saw it but his lackey. Tis a hooded valor, and when it appears, it will beat. Ill will never said well. I will cap that proverb with, there is flattery in friendship. I will take up that with, give the devil his due. Well placed. There stands your friend for the devil. Have at the very eye of that proverb with, a pox of the devil. You are better at proverbs. By how much a fool's bolt is soon shot. You have shot over. Not the first time you were overshot. Enter your messenger. My lord high constable, the English lie within fifteen hundred paces of your tents. Who hath measured the ground? Uh, the lord Grand Pre. Valiant and most expert gentleman. What it were day! Alas, poor Harry of England. He longs not for the dawning as we do. A wretched and peevish fellow is this king of England to mope with this fat-brained follower so far out of his knowledge. If the English had any apprehension, they would run away. That they lack. For if their heads had any intellectual armor, they could never wear such heavy headpieces. That island of England breeds very valiant creatures. Their mastiffs are of unmatchable courage. Foolish curs that run winking into the mouth of a Russian bear and have had their heads crushed like rotten apples. You may as well say that's a valiant flea that dare eat his breakfast on the lip of a lion. Just, just. And the men do sympathize with the mastiffs in robustious and rough coming on, leaving their wits with their wives. And then give them great meals of beef and iron and steel. They will eat like wolves and fight like devils. Aye, but these English are shrewdly out of beef. Then shall we find tomorrow they have only stomachs to eat and none to fight? Now is it time to arm. Come, shall we about it? 
It is now two o'clock, but let me see. By ten, we shall have each a hundred Englishmen. Exit. Act four, prologue, enter chorus. Now, entertain conjecture of a time when creeping murmur and the pouring dark fills the wide vessel of the universe. From camp to camp, through the foul womb of night, the hum of either army still sounds that the fixed sentinels almost receive the secret whispers of each other's watch. Fire answers fire, and through their pally flames, each battle sees the other's umbered face. Steed threatens steed in high and boastful neighs, piercing the dull knight's ear, and from the tents the armorers, accomplishing the knights with busy hammers closing rivets up, give dreadful note of preparation. The country cocks do crow, the clocks do toll, and the third hour of drowsy morning name. Proud of their numbers and secure in soul, the confident and over-lusty French do the low-rated English play at dice and chide the cripple-tardy-gated knight who, like a foul and ugly witch, doth limp so tediously away. The poor condemned English, like sacrifices by their watchful fires, sit patiently and inly illuminate the morning's danger, and their gestures sad investing like queen. Cheeks and war-worn coats presented them unto the gazing moon. So many horrid ghosts. Oh, now, who will behold the royal captain of his ruined ban band, walking from watch to watch, from tent to tent? Let him cry praise and glory on his head. For forth he goes and visits all his host, bids them good morrow with a modest smile and calls them brothers, friends, and countrymen. Upon his royal face, there is no note how dread an army hath enrounded him, nor doth he dedicate one jot of color unto the weary and o'er-watched night, but freshly looks and overbears a taint with cheerful semblance. And sweet majesty, that every wretch, pining and pale before beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks. A largesse universal, like the sun, his liberal eye doth give to every one, thawing cold fear, that mean and gentle all behold 
as may unworthiness divine. A little touch of fury in that eight. And so our scene must to the battle fly, where, oh, for pity, we shall much disgrace with four or five most vile ragged boils. Right ill-disposed in brawl ridiculous, the name of Agincourt Yet sit and see, minding true things by what their mockeries be. Exit. Scene one, the English camp at Agincourt. Enter King Henry, Bedford, and Gloucester. <sighs> Gloucester, tis true that we are in great danger. The greater, therefore, should our courage be. Good morrow, rather Bedford, God almighty. There is some soul of goodness in things evil. Would men observingly distill it out? For our proud neighbor makes us early stirrers, which is both healthful and good husbandry. Besides, they are our outward consciences and preachers to us all, admonishing that we should dress up fairly for our end. <laughs> Thus may we gather honey from the weed and make a moral of the devil himself. Enter Irbingham. Good morrow, old Sir Thomas Irvingham. A good soft pillow for that good white head were better than a churlish turf of France. Not so, my liege. This lodging likes me better, since I may say, now lie I like a king. <laughs> Tis good for men to love their present pains upon example, so the spirit is eased. And when the mind is quickened out of doubt, the organs, though defunct and dead before, break up their drowsy grave and newly move with casted slew and fresh legarty. Lend me thy cloak, Sir Thomas' brother, both. Commend me to the princes in our camp. Do my good morrow to them, and anon desire them and to my pavilion. We shall, my liege. <laughs> shall I attend your grace? No, my good knight. Go with my brothers to my lords of England, and my bosom must debate a while. And then I would no other company. The Lord in heaven bless thee, noble Harry. Exempt all but King Henry. God of mercy, old heart. Speakest cheerfully. Enter pistol. Kibala? Uh, a friend. Discuss unto me, art thou officer, or art thou base, common, and popular? I am gentleman of a company. Trailst thou the puissant pike? Mm, even so. What are you? As good a gentleman as the emperor. Ah, then you are a better than the king. The king's a bawcock and a heart of gold, a lad of <laughs> life and imp of fame, of parents good, of fist most valiant. I kiss his dirty shoe, and from heartstring I love the lovely bully. What is thy name? Harry. Leroy. Leroy, a Cornish name. Art thou of Cornish crew? No, I am a Welshman. Notes thou Fluellen? Oh, yes. Tell him I'll knock his leek about his pate upon St. Davy's Day. Oh, do not you wear your dagger in your cap that day, lest he knock that about yours. Art thou his friend? And his kinman too. 
The Figo for thee, then. I thank you. God be with you. My name is Pistol Cult. Exit. It sorts well with your fierceness. Enter Fluellen and Gower. <clears throat> Captain Fluellen. So, in the name of Jesu Christ, speak lower. It is the greatest admiration of the universal world when the true and ancient prerogatives and laws of the wars is not kept. If you would take the pains but to examine the wars of Pompey the Great, you shall find, I warrant you, that there is no tiddle-tuddle nor pibble-pabble in Pompey's camp. I warrant you, you shall find the ceremonies of the wars and the cares of it and the forms of it and the sobriety of it and the modesty of it to be otherwise. Why, the enemy is loud. You hear him all night. If the enemy is an ass and a fool and a prating coxcomb, is it meet, think you, that we should also look you, be an ass and a fool and a prating coxcomb in your own conscience now? I will speak lower. I pray you and beseech you that you will. Enter Exent Gower and Fluellen. Though it appears a little out of fashion, there's much care and valor in this Welshman. Enter three soldiers, John Bates, Alexander Court, and Michael Williams. <clears throat> Brother John Bates, is not that the morning which breaks yonder? I think it be, but we have no great cause for the day. Sorry, guys. We see yonder the beginning of the day, but I think we shall never see the end of it. Who goes there? A friend. Under what captain serve you? Under Sir Thomas Eppingram. Ah, good com old commander and most kind gentleman. Mm. I pray you, what thinks he of our estate? Oh, even as man wrecked upon a shad that looked to be washed off the next tide. He hath not told his thought to the king. Oh. Nor is it to not meet he should. For though I speak it to you, I think the king is but a man, as I am. The violent smells to him as it doth to me. The element shows to him as it doth to me. All his senses have but human conditions. His ceremonies laid by in his nakedness. His appears but a man, and though his affections are higher mountain than ours, yet when they stoop, stoop with the like wing. Therefore, when he sees reasons of fear as we do, his fears of doubt be of the same relish as our sir. Yet in reason, no man should possess him with any appearance of fear, lest he be showing it should dishearten his army. He may show what it were courage he will, but I believe as cold a night as tis, he would wish himself in Thames up to the neck. And so I would he were, and I by him, at all adventures, so we were quit here. Mm, by my troth, I will speak my conscience of the king. I think he would not wish himself anywhere but where he is. Then I would he were here alone. So should he be sure to be ransomed and many a poor man's lives be saved? I dare say you love him not so ill to wish him here alone. Howsoe'er you speak this to feel other men's minds. 
Methinks I could not die anywhere so contentedly, as in the king's company, his cause being just and his quarrel honorable. What's more than we know? Aye, or more than we should seek after. For we know enough, if we know we are, king, we are the king's subjects. If his cause be wrong, our obedience to the king wipes the crime of it out of us. But if the cause be not good, the king himself hath a heavy, rec heavy reckoning to make, and all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in battle shall join together at the latter day and cry, All, we died at such a place. Some swearing, some crying for a surgeon, some upon their wives left but poor behind them, some upon the debts they owe, some upon their children rawly left. I am afeard there are few die well that die in a battle, for how can they charitably dispose of anything when blood is their argument? Now, if these men do not die well, it will be a black matter for the king that led them to it, whom to disobey were against all proportion for of subjection. So, if a son that is by his father sent about merchandise, do shamefully miscarry upon the sea the imputation of his wickedness by your rule should be imposed upon his father that sent him. Or if a servant under his master's command transporting a sum of money be assailed by robbers and die in many iniquities, you may call the business of the master the author of the servant's damnation. But this is not so. The king is not bound to answer the particular endings of his soldiers the father of his son, or the master of his servant. They purpose not the death when they propose their services. Besides, there is no king, be his cause never so spotless, if it come to the arbitrament of swords, can try it out with all unspotted soldiers. Some peradventure per have on them the guilt of premeditated and contrived murder. Some of beguiling virgins with the broken seals of perjury, some making the war their bulwark that have been foregored the gentle bosom of peace with pillage and robbery. Now, if these men have defeated the law and outrun native punishment, though they can outstrip men, they have no wings to fly from God. War is his beetle, war is vengeance. So that here men are punished for before breach of the king's law is now the king's quarrel. Where they feared the death, they have borne life away, and where they would be safe, they perish. Then they die unprovided. No more is the king guilty of their damnation than he was before guilty of those impieties for which they are now visited. Every subject's duty is to the king's, but every subject's soul is his own. Therefore, should every soldier in the war do as every sick man in his bed, wash every mote out of his conscience, and dying so, death is to him advantage. Or not dying, the time was blessedly lost, wherein such preparation was gained, and in him that escapes. It were not sin to think at making God so free an offer. He let him outlive that day to see his greatness, to teach others how they should prepare. Tis certain, every man that dies ill, the ill upon his own head, the king is not to answer it. Mm -hmm. 
but I do not desire he should answer for me, and yet I determined to fight lustily for him. I myself heard the king say he would not be ransomed. Why, he said so, to make us fight cheerfully. But when our throats are cut, he may be ransomed, and we ne'er the wiser. Oh, if I live to see it, I will never trust his word after. You pay him then. That's a perilous shot out of an elder gun that a poor and private displeasure can do against a monarch. You may as well go about to turn the sun to ice with fanning in his face with a peacock's feather. You'll never trust his word after <laughs> to come to the foolish saying. <clears throat> Your reproof is something too round. I should be angry with you if the time were convenient. Let it be a quarrel between us if you live. I embrace it. How shall I know thee again? Give me a gauge of thine, and I will wear it in my bonnet. If ever thou darest acknowledge it, I will make it my quarrel. Here's my glove. Give me another of thine. Hmm. Here is my glove. This, this will I also wear in my cap, if ever thou come to me and say, after tomorrow, this is my glove, by this hand I will take thee a box on the ear. If ever I live to she it, I will challenge it. Now darest as well be hanged. Well, I will do it, though I take thee in the king's company. Keep thy word, fare thee well. Be friends, you English fools, be friends. We have French quarrels now, if you would, if you could tell how to reckon. Indeed, the French may lay 20 French crowns to one, they will beat us, for they bear them on their shoulders. But it is no English treason to cut French crowns. And tomorrow, the king himself will be a clipper. Exent soldiers. <laughs> Upon the king, let us our lives, our souls, our debts, our careful wives, our children and our sins lay on the king. They must bear all. Oh, hard condition, twin born with greatness, subject to the breath of every fool whose sense no more can feel but his own ringing. What infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy? And what have kings that privates have not to, save ceremony, save general ceremony? And what art thou, thou idle ceremony? What kind of god art thou that suffers more than a mortal griefs than do thy worshippers? What are thy rents? What are thy comings in? Oh, ceremony, show me but thy worth. What is thy soul of adoration? Art thou aught else but place, degree, and form, creating awe and fear in other men? Wherein thou art less happy being feared than they in fearing? What drinkest thou oft instead of homage, sweet, but poison flattery? Oh, be sick, great greatness, and bid thy ceremony give thee cure. Thinkest thou the fiery fever will go out with titles blown from adulation? Will it give place to flexure and low bending? Canst thou, when thou commandst the beggar's knee, command the health of it? No, 
Oh, proud dream that playest so subtly with a king's repose. I am the king that find thee, and I know tis not the bond, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the interissued robe of gold and pearl, the farced little running for the king, the throne he sits on, nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high score of this world. No, not all of these thrice gorgeous ceremony, not all of these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave who with a body filled and vacant mind gets him to rest, crammed with distressful bread, never sees horrid night, the child of hell, but like a lackey from the rise to set, sweats in the eye of Phoebus, and all night sleeps in Elysium. Next day after dawn doth rise and help Hyperion to his horse, and follows so the ever-running year with profitable labor to his grave. And but for ceremony, such a wretch, winding up days with toil and nights with sleep, had the forehand advantage of a king, a slave, a member of the country's peace, enjoys it, but in gross brain little wants. What watch the king keeps to maintain the peace, whose hours the peasant best advantages. Enter Erpingham. My lord, your nobles, jealous of your absence, seek through your camp to find you. <laughs> Good old knight. Um, collect them all together at my tent. I'll be before thee. I shall do it, my lord. Exit. Exit. Oh, God of battles, steal my soldiers' hearts. Possess them not with fear. Take from them now the senseless reckoning if the opposed numbers pluck their hearts from them. Not today, oh Lord, oh, not today. Think upon the fault my father made in compassing the crown. I, Richard's body, have interred anew on it have bestowed more contrite tears than from it issued forced drops of blood. Five hundred poor I have in yearly pay, whose twice a day their withered hands hold up toward heaven to pardon blood. And I have built two chantries where the sad and solemn priests sing still for Richard's soul. More will I do Though all that I can do is nothing worth since that my penitence comes after all. Imploring pardon. Enter Gloucester. My liege. My brother Gloucester's voice. <clears throat> I know thy errand. I will go with thee. The day, my friends, and all things stay for me. Exit. Scene two, the French camp entered the Dauphin, Orléans, Rambures, and others. The sun doth gild our armor. Up, my lords. Montez, cheval, my horse, my leg, lucky, up. Oh, brave spirit. Vieux, l'air, l'air, terre. Rien puis, l'air, l'air, Ciel, cousin, Orléans. Now, my lord, constable. Hark how her steeds for present service neigh. 
melt them and make incision in their hides, <laughs> that their hot blood may spin in English eyes and dump them with the superfluous courage. Ah! What, will you have them weep our horse's blood? How shall we then behold their natural tears? Enter messenger. The English are embattled, you French peers. Horse, you gallant princes! Strike to horse! Do but behold yon poor and starved bend, and your fair show shall suck away their souls, leaving them but the shales and husks of men! There is not work enough for all our hands, scarce blood enough in all their sickly veins to give each naked curtilax a stain that our French gallants shall today draw out and sheathe for lack of sport. Let us blow on them. The vapor of our valor will o'erturn them. Tis positive, gainst all exceptions, lords, that our superfluous lackeys and our peasants, who in unnecessary action swarm about our squares of battle, were in now to purge this field of such a hilding foe, though we upon this mountain's basis by took stand for idle speculation. But that our honors must, but that our honors must not. What's to say? A very little, little let us do, and all is done. Then let the trumpets sound, the tucket sonnets, and the note to mount, for our approach shall so much dare the field that England shall couch down in fear and yield. Enter Grand Prix. Why do you sit so long, my lords of France? Yon island kinds, desperate of their bonds, ill-favoredly become the morning fields. Their ragged curtains poorly are let loose, and our air shakes them passing scornfully. Big Mars seems bankrupt in their beggar hosts, and faintly through a rusty beer peeps. The horsemen sit like fixed candlesticks, with torch staves in their hands, and their poor jades lob down their heads. Dropping the hides and the hips, the gum dung roping from their pale dead eyes, and in their pale dull mouths the gimmel bit lies foul with chewed grass, still and motionless, and their executors, the neighbors' crows, fly o'er them, all impatient for their hour. Description cannot suit itself with words, demonstrate the life of such a battle in life so lifeless as it shows itself. They have said their prayers, and they stay for death. Shall we uh, go send them dinners and fresh suits and give their fasting horses provender and after fight with them? I stay but for my guidon. To the field! I will the banner from a trumpet take and use it for my haste. Come! Come away! The sun is high, and we outwear the day. Excellent. Scene three, the English camp, enter Gloucester, Bedford, Exeter, Erpingham, and all his host, Salisbury and Westmoreland. Where's the king? The king himself has rode to view their battle. Fighting men, they have full three score thousand. There's five to one. Besides, they are all fresh. God's arms strike with us. 
Tis a fearful odds. God be with you, princes all, all to my charge. If we no more meet till we meet in heaven, then joyfully my lord, my noble lord of Bedford, my dear lord Gloucester, and my lord, good lord Exeter, and my kind kinsmen, warriors, all adieu. Farewell, good Salisbury, and good luck go with thee. Farewell, kind lord. Fight valiantly today. And yet, I do thee wrong to mind thee of it, for thou art framed of the firm truth of valor. Exit Salisbury. He is full of valor as of kindness, princely in both. Enter the king. Oath that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westberlin. No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are in now to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, my cuz. Wish not a man from England. God's peace. I would not lose so great an honor as one man more. Methinks would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, and he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and come safe home, will stand a tiptoe when the day is named, and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He shall that day live this day, and see old age, will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors, and say, tomorrow is it, Crispian! Then will he strip his sleeve, and show his scars, and say, these wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget, Yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names familiar in his mouth as household words. Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen, 
in England, now a bed shall think themselves accursed that they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. We enter Salisbury. My sovereign lord, bestow yourself with speed. The French are bravely in their battle set and will with all expedience charge on us. All things are ready for if our minds be so. Perish the man whose mind is backward now. Thou dost not wish more help from England, cuz? God's will, my liege, would you and I alone, without more help, could fight this royal battle. Why, now that thou hast unwished five thousand men, which likes me better than to wish us all one, you know your places. God be with you all! Tuck it, enter Montjoy. Once more I come to know of thee, King Harry. If for thy ransom thou wilt now compound, before thy most assured overthrow. For certainly thou art so near the gulf, thou needs must be englutted. Besides, in mercy, the constable desires thee thou wilt mind thy followers of repentance, that their souls may make a peaceful and a sweet retire from off these fields where, wretches, their poor bodies must lie and fester. Who has sent thee now? The constable of France. Hmm. I pray thee, bear my former answer back. Bid them achieve me and then sell my bones. Good God, why should they mock poor fellows thus? The man that once did sell the lion's skin while the beast lived was killed with hunting him. And many of our bodies shall no doubt find narratives, graves, upon the which I trust shall witness live in brass of this day's work. And those that leave their valiant bones in France, dying like men, though buried in your dunghills, they shall be famed. For there the sun shall greet them and draw their honors, reeking up to heaven. Leaving their earthly parts to choke you, climb the smell whereof shall breed a plague in France. Mark then abounding valor in our English, that being dead, like to the bullets grazing, break out into a second course of mischief, killing in relapse of mortality. Let me speak proudly. Tell the constable we are but warriors for the working day. Our gayness and our guilt are all besmirched. With rainy marching in the painful field, there's not a piece of feather in our host. Good argument, I hope we will not fly. And time hath worn us into slavery. But by the mass, our hearts are in the trim. And my poor soldiers tell me yet ere night, they'll be in fresher robes or they will pluck the gay new coats over the French soldiers' heads and turn them out of service. If they do this, as if God please they shall, my ransom then will soon be levied. Herald, save thou thy labor. Come thou no more for ransom, gentle herald. They shall have none. I swear by these joints, which if they have, as I will leave them, shall yield them little. Tell the constable. I shall, King Henry, King Harry, and so fare thee well. 
Thou never shalt hear Harold anymore. Exit. I fear thou'lt once more come again for ransom. Enter York. My lord, most humbly on my knee, I beg the leading of the Voward. Take it, brave York. Now, soldiers, march away. And thou hast pleasant God. Dispose the day. Exent. Scene four, the field of battle. Alarum, excursions, enter pistol, French soldier, and boy. Yield, cur. Je pense que vous êtes gentil homme de bonne qualité. Qualité, calme, custerme. Art thou a gentleman? What is thy name? Discuss. Oh, Seigneur Dieu. Oh, Seigneur Dieu would, should be a gentleman. Perpend my words, oh, Seigneur Dieu, and mark, oh, Seigneur Dieu, thou diest on point of fox, except, oh, Seigneur, thou do give to me egregious ransom. Oh, prenez misericorde. Ayez pitié de moi. Moi shall not serve. I will have forty moys or I will fetch thy rim out at thy throat in drops of crimson blood. Et il impossible de chaper la force de ton bras? Brass, cur, thou damned and luxurious mountain goat, offerest me brass. Oh, pardonnez-moi. Sayest thou me so? Is that a ton of moise? Come hither, boy, ask me this slave in French what is his name. Monsieur Lefer. He says his name is Master Fair. Master Fair? I'll fare him and firk him and ferret him. Discuss the same in French unto him. I do not know the French for fair and ferret and firk. Bid him prepare. For I will cut his throat. Que dit-il, monsieur? Il me commande de vous dire que vous faites vous prêtes, car des soldats ici est disposé tout à sept air et coupe votre gorge. Au coupe gorge per mes fois, peasant, unless thou give me crowns, brave crowns, or mangled shalt thou be by this by sword. Sorry. Sorry, lost my place. There it is. Oh, je vous supplie, pour l'amour de Dieu, me pardonnez. Je suis gentil homme de bonne maison. Gardez ma vie et je vous donnerai deux cents écus. What are his words? He prays you to save his life. He is a gentleman of a good house, and for his ransom, he will give you 200 crowns. Tell him my fury shall abate, and I the crowns will take. Petit monsieur, que dit-il? Encore qu'il est contre son jurement de pardonner à un prisonnier, ni moi pour les écoutes qui vous Brave. 
valeur et très distingué, Seigneur d'Angleterre. Expound unto me, boy. He gives you upon his knees a thousand thanks, and he esteems himself happy that he has fallen into the hands of one, as he thinks, the most brave, valorous, and thrice-worthy Seigneur of England. As I suck blood, I will some mercy show. Follow me. Vivez-vous le grand capitaine? Excellent pistol and French soldier. I did never know so full a voice issue from so empty a heart, but the saying is true. The empty vessel makes the greatest sound. Baudolf and Nim had ten times more valor than this roaring devil in the old play, and every one may pare his nails with a wooden dagger, and they are both hanged, and so would this be if he durst steal anything adventurously. I must stay with the lackeys, with the luggage of our camp. The French might have a good prey of us if he knew of it, for there is none to guard it but boys. Exit. Scene five, another part of the field. Enter Constable Orléans, Bourbon, Dauphin, and Rambrez. Constable? Yep, computer just did something stupid. Sorry. Ah, diable! Oh, senor, le jour perdu, le tour est perdu. Not the navy. I was confounded. Oh, le portrait everlasting shame sits knocking in our plumes. Oh, merchante, do not run away. Why, all our ranks are broke. Oh, perdurable shame. Let's, uh, Stab ourselves. Uh, be these the wretches that we played the dice for? Is this the king we sent you for his ransom? Shame and eternal shame, nothing but shame. Let us die in honor once more back again. And he that will not follow Bourbon now, let him go hence and with his cap in hand like a base pander. Hold the chamber door whilst by a slave, no gentler than my dog, his fairest daughter is contaminated. Disorder that hath spoiled us, friend us now. Let us on heaps go, offer up our lives. We are now yet living in the field to smother up the English in our throngs, if any order might be thought upon. The devil take order now, I'll to the throng, let life be short, as shame, else shame will be too long. Exit. Scene six, another part of the field, alarms, enter King Henry and forces, exeters, exeter, and others. Well have we done thrice valiant countrymen, but all's not done. Yet keep the French in the field. The Duke of York commends him to your majesty. Lives he, good uncle. Thrice within this hour I saw him down, thrice up again and fighting. From the helmet to the spur, all blood he was. In which array, brave soldier, doth he lie, larding the plain? And by his bloody sight, yoke fellow to his honor owing wounds, the noble Earl of Suffolk also lies. Suffolk first died, and York all haggled over. 
comes to him, wherein Gore he lay in steeped and takes him by the beard, kisses the gashes that bloodily did spawn upon his face and cries aloud, Terry, dear cousin, soften. My soul shall thine keep company to heaven. Terry, sweet soul for mine. Then fly abreast, as in this glorious and well-fought field we kept together in our, in our chivalry. Upon these words, I came and cheered him up. He smiled me in the face, wrought me his hand, and with a feeble gripe says, Dear my Lord, commend my, so my service to my sovereign. So did he turn, and over Suffolk's neck, he threw his wounded arm and kissed his lips, and so espoused to death. With blood, he sealed a testament of noble ending love. The pretty and sweet manner of it forced those waters from me, which I would have stopped. But I had not so much of man in me. And all my mother came into mine eyes and gave me up to tears. I blame you not. For hearing this, I must perforce compound with Miss Flies, or they will issue too. Alarm. But hark, what new alarm is this same? The French have reinforced the scattered men. Then every soldier, kill his prisoners. Give the word through. Exit. Scene seven, another part of the field. Enter Fluellen and Gower. Kill the poise and the luggage. Tis expressly against the law of arms. Tis as errant a piece of knavery, mark you now, as can be offered in your conscience now. Is it not? Tis certain there's not a boy left alive. And the cowardly rascals that ran from the battle had done this slaughter. Besides, they have burnt and carried away all that was in the king's tent. Wherefore, the king, most worthily, hath caused every soldier to cut the prisoner's throat. Oh, tis a gallant king. Aye, he was born at Monmouth, Captain Gower. What call you the town's name where Alexander the Pig was born? Alexander the Great. Why, I pray you, is not pig great? The pig, or the great, or the mighty, or the huge, or the magnanimous, or the all one reckoning, save the phrase, as a little variations. I think Alexander the Great was born in Macedon. His father was called Philip of Macedon, as I take it. I think it is in Macedon where Alexander is born. I tell you, Captain, if you look in the maps of the world, I warrant you shall find in the comparisons between Macedon and Monmouth that the situations, look you, is both alike. There is a river in Macedon, and there is also, moreover, a river at Monmouth. It is called Wye at Monmouth, but it is out of my brains what is the name of the other river. But tis all one. Tis alike as my fingers is to my fingers, and there is salmons in both. If you mark Alexander's life well, Harry of Monmouth's life is come after it indifferent. Well, for there is figures in all things. Alexander, God knows, and you know in his rages and his furies and his wraths and his colors and his moods and his displeasures and his indignations and also being a little intoxicates in his brains, did in his ales and his angers, look you, kill his best friend, Clytus. Our king is not like that, not like him in that. 
he never killed any of his friends. It is not well done, mark you now, to take the tales out of my mouth ere it is made and finished. I speak but in the figures and comparisons of it, as Alexander killed his friend Clytus, being in his ales and his cups, so also Harry Monmouth, being in his right wits and his good judgments, turned away the fat knight with a great belly doublet. He was full of jests and jipes and knaveries and mocks. I forgot his name. Sir John Falstaff. That is he. I tell you, there is good men porn at Monmouth. So here comes his majesty. Alarum, enter King Henry and forces Warwick, Gloucester, Exeter, and others. I was not angry since I came to France until this instant. Take a trumpet, Harold. Ride thou unto the horsemen on your hill. If they will fight with us, bid them come down or void the field. They do offend our sight. If they'll do neither, we will come to them and make them scur away as swift as stones and force from the old Assyrian slings. Besides, we'll cut the throats of those we have, and not a man of them that we shall take shall taste our mercy. Go and tell them so. Enter Montjoy. Here comes the herald of the French, my liege. His eyes are humbler than they used to be. How now? What means this herald? Knowest thou not that I have find these bones of mine for ransom? Comest thou again for ransom? No, great king. I come to thee for charitable license, that we may wander o'er this bloody field to look our dead, to, and then to bury them, to sort our nobles from our common men. For many of our princes, woe the while, lie drowned and soaked in mercenary blood. So do our vulgar drench their present, their peasant limbs in blood of princes. And their wounded steeds fret, fetlock deep in gore, and with wide, wild rage yerk out their armed heels at their dead masters, killing them twice. Oh. Give us leave, great king to view the field in safety and dispose of their dead bodies. I tell thee truly, Harold, I know not if the day be ours or no, for yet a many of your horsemen peer and gallop o'er the field. The day is yours. Praise it be God, and not our strength for it. What is this castle called? It stands hard by. They call it Agincourt. Then call we the field of Agincourt fought on the day of Crispin Crispianus. Your grandfather, a famous memory, and it please your majesty, and your great uncle, Edward the Black Prince of Wales, as I have read in the chronicles, fought a most brave battle here in France. They did, Flewellen. Your Majesty says very true. If Your Majesty is, is remembered of it, the Welshmen did good service in a garden where leeks did grow, wearing leeks in their Monmouth caps, which Your Majesty knew to this hour is an honourable badge of the service. And I do believe Your Majesty takes no scorn to wear the leek upon St. Avi's Day. I wear it for a memorable honour, for I am Welsh, you know, good countryman. 
All the water in Y cannot wash your majesty's Welsh blood out of your body. I can tell you that. <laughs> God bless it and preserve it as long as it pleases his grace and his majesty too. Thanks, good my countryman. By Jesu, I am your majesty's countryman. I care not who knows it. I will confess it to all the world. I need not be ashamed of your majesty. Praised be to God, so long as your majesty is an honest man. God keep me so. Our heralds go with him. Bring me just notice of the numbers dead on both our parts. Call yonder fellow hither. Points to Williams, exempt heralds with Montjoy. Soldier, you must come to the tent. Soldier, why wearest that glove in thy cap? And please your majesty, tis the gauge of one that I should fight withal, if he be alive. Mm, an Englishman. And please your majesty, a rascal that swaggered with me last night, who, if alive and ever dare to challenge this glove, I have sworn to take him a box all the year. Or if I can see my glove in his cap, which he swore, as he was a soldier, he would wear if alive, I will strike it out soundly. Mm. What think you, Captain Fluellen? Is it fit this soldier keep his oath? He is a craven and a villain else, and it please your majesty and my conscience. It may be his enemy and a gentleman of great sorts, quite from the answer of his degree. Though he be a gentleman as the devil is, as Lucifer and Beelzebub himself, it is necessary, look you, your grace, that he keep his vow and his oath. If he be perjured, see you now, his reputation is as errant a villain and a jack sauce as ever his black shoe trod upon God's ground and his earth in my conscience, la. Then keep thy vow, sirrah. When thou meetest the fellow? So I will, my liege, as I live. Whose service thou under? Under Captain Gower, my liege. Well, Gower is a good captain, and he is a good knowledge and literature in the wars. Hmm. Call him hither to me, soldier. I will, my liege. Exit. Here, Fluellen, wear thou this favour for me, and stick it in thy cap. When Ali... Well, Alencon and myself were down together, I plucked this glove from his helm. If any man challenge this, he is a friend to Alencon and an enemy to our person. If thou encounter any such, apprehend him, and thou dost love me. Uh, your grace does me two great honors, as can be desired in the hearts of his subjects. <laughs> I would fain see the man that has but two legs that shall find himself aggrieved at this glove. That is all. But I would fain see it once, and please God of his grace that I might see. Knowest thou Gower? Oh, he is my dear friend, and please you. Well, pray thee, go seek him, and bring him to my tent. I will fetch him. Exit. My lord of Warwick, and my brother Gloucester, follow Fluenen closely at the heels. The glove which I have given him for a favor may haply purchase him a box for the ear. It is the soldiers. I by, I by bargain should wear it myself. Follow, good cousin Warwick. If that the soldier strike him, as I judge, by this blunt bearing, he will keep his word. Some sudden mischief may arise of it, for I do know Fluellen Valiant, in touch with the collar, hot as gunpowder, and quickly will return any injury. Follow and see there be no harm between them. Go you with me, Uncle Exeter. Exit. Scene eight before King Henry's pavilion. Enter Gower and Williams. I warrant it is to knight you, Captain. Enter Fluellen. 
God's will and his pleasure, Captain, I beseech you now, come apace to the king. There is more good toward your peradventure than in your knowledge to dream of. Sir, know you this glove? Know the glove. I know the glove is glove. I know this, and thus I challenge it. Splud. An errant traitor and any is in the universal world or in France or in England. How now, sir? You villain. Do you think I'll be forsworn? Stand away, Captain Gower. I will give treason his payment to the plows, I warrant you. I am no traitor. That's a lie in thy throat. I charge you in his majesty's name. Apprehend him. He's a friend of the Duke Allensons. Enter Warwick and Gloucester. Sorry. One second. How now? How now? What's the matter? My lord of Warwick here. Uh, praised be God for it. A most contagious treason come to light, look you, as you shall desire in a summer's day. Here is his majesty. Enter King Henry in Exeter. How now? What's the matter? My liege, here is a villain and a traitor that, look your grace, has struck the glove which your majesty is take out of the helmet of Alanson. My liege, this was my glove. Here is the fellow of it. And he that I gave it to in change promised to wear it in his cap. I promised to strike him if he did. I met this man with my glove in his cap, and I have been as good as my word. Your majesty here now, saving your majesty's manhood, what an errant, rascally, beggarly, lousy knave it is. I hope your majesty is permit testimony and witness and will avouchment that this is the glove of Alanson that your majesty is give me. In your conscience now? Give me thy glove, soldier. Look, here is the fellow of it. "'Twas indeed I thou promised to strike, and thou hast given me most bitter terms." "'And please, your majesty, let his neck answer for it, if there is any martial law in the world." "'How can thou make this satisfaction?' "'All offences, my lord, come from the heart. Never came any from mine that might offend your majesty.' "'It was ourself thou didst abuse.' Your, major, your majesty came not like yourself. You appeared to me but as a common man. Witness mm. tonight your garments, your lowliness, and what your highness suffered under that shape. I beseech you, take it for your own fault and not mine. For had you been as I took you for, I made no offense. Therefore, I beseech your highness, pardon me. Hmm. Here, Uncle Exeter. Fill this glove with crowns and give it to this fellow. Keep it, fellow, and wear it for an honor in thy cap till I do challenge it. Give him the crowns, and captain, you must needs be friends with him. By this day and this light, this fellow has metal enough in his belly. Hold, there is twelve pence for you, and I pray you to serve God and keep you out of prowls and prabbles and quarrels and dissensions, and I warrant you, it is the better for you. I will none of your money. It is with a good will. I can tell you it will serve you to mend your shoes 
Come, wherefore should you be so bashful? Your shoes is not so good. Tis a good shilling, I warrant you, or I will change it. Enter an English herald. Now, herald, are the dead numbered? What prisoners of good sword are taken, uncle? Charles, Duke of Orleans, nephew to the king. John, Duke of Bourbon, and Lord Bocacalt, of other lords and barons, knights and squires, full uh, 1,500, besides common men. His note doth tell me of 10,000 French that in the field lie slain. Of princes in this number and nobles bearing banners, there lie dead. 126 added to these, of knights, esquires, and gallant gentlemen, 8,400, of which 500 were but yesterday dubbed knights, so that in these 10,000 they have lost. There are but 1,600 mercenaries, the rest are princes, barons, lords, knights, and squires, and gentlemen of blood and quality. The name of those nobles that lie dead, Charles de la Breth, High Constable of France, Jacques de Chatillon, Admiral of France, the Master of the Crossbows, Lord Rambarez, Great Master of France, the brave Sir Gouchard d'Arfant, John Duke of Alencon, Anthony Duke of Brabant, the brother of the Duke of Burgundy, and Edward Duke of Bar of Lusty Earls, Grand Pre, and Roussy, Falconberg, and Foix, Beaumont and Marle, Vaudemont and Lestral, here was a royal fellowship of death. Where is the number of our English dead? Harold shows him another paper. Edward, the Duke of Lork, the Earl of Suffolk, Sir Richard Ketley, Davy Gann, Esquire. None else of name and of all other men, but five and 20. Oh God, thy arm was here, and not to us, but by thy arm alone ascribe we all. When without stratagem, but in plain sh shock and even play of battle was ever known so great and little loss on one part, and on the other, oh, take it, God, for it is none but thine. It is wonderful. Come, go we in procession to the village, and be it death proclaimed through our host, to boast of this or take the praise from God, which is his only. Is it not lawful? And please, your majesty, to tell how many is killed? Yes, captain. But with this acknowledgement that God fought for us. Yes, my conscience, he did us great good. Do we all holy rites. Let there be sung non nobis and te deum. The dead with charity enclosed in clay. And then to Calais. And to England then. When ne'er from France arrived more happy men. Exit. Act five, prologue, enter chorus. 
Vouchsafe to those that have not read the story that I may prompt them, and of such as we have, I humbly pray them to admit the excuse of time, of numbers, and due course of things which cannot in their huge and proper life be here presented. Now we bear the king towards Calais. Grant him there. They are seen. Keep him away upon your winged thoughts, athwart the sea. Behold, the English beach pales with the flood, in the flood with men, with wives and boys whose shouts and claps outvoice the deep mouthed sea, which, like a mighty whiffler for the king, seems to prepare his way. So let him land and solemnly see him set on to London. So swift a pace hath thought that even now you may imagine him upon Blackheath, where that his lords desire him to have borne his bruised helmet and his bended sword before him through the city. He forbids it, being free from vainness and self-glorious pride, giving full trophy, signal, and ostent quite from himself to God. But now, behold, in the quick forge and working house of thought, how London doth pour out her citizen. The mayor and all his brethren in best sort, like to the senators of the antique Rome, with the plebeians swarming at their heels, go forth and fetch their conquering Caesar in. As by a lower but loving likelihood, were now the general of our gracious empress, as in good time he may, from Ireland coming, bringing rebellion broached on his sword, how many would be would the peaceful city quit to welcome him. Much more and much more cause did they this harry. Now in London place him, as yet the lamentation of the French invites the king of England stay at home. The emperor's coming in behalf of France to order peace between them and omit all the occurrences, whatever chance, till Harry's back return again to France. There must we bring him, and myself have played the interim by remembering you to pass. Then, <clears throat> brook abridgment, and your eyes advance after your thoughts straight back again to France. Exit. Scene one, France, the English camp, enter Fluellen and Gower. Nay, that's right. <laughs> but why wear you your leek today? St. Davy's Day is past. Yeah, there is occasions and causes why and wherefore in all things. I will tell you, ask my friend, Captain Gower, the rascally, scald, beggarly, lousy, pragging knave, Pistol, which you and yourself and all the world knew to be no 
better than a fellow, look you now, of no merits. He has come to me and brings me bread and salt yesterday, look you, and bid me eat my leek. It was in place where I could not breed no contention with him, but I will be so bold as to wear it in my cap till I see him once again, and then I will tell him a little piece of my desires. Enter Pistol. Why, here he comes, swelling like a turkey cock. Tis no matter for his swelling nor his turkey cocks. God bless you, unshint Pistol, you scurvy, lousy knave. God bless you. Ah, art thou bedlam? Dost thou thirst, base Trojan, to have me fold up Parca's fatal web? Hence, I am qualmish at the smell of leek. I beseech you heartily, scurvy, lousy knave, at my desires and my requests and my petitions to eat, look you, this leek. Because, look you, you do not love it, nor your affections and your appetites and your digestions does not agree with it, I would desire you to eat it. Not for Cadwallader and all his goats. There is one goat for you. Strikes him. Will you be so good, scald knave, as to eat it? Base Trojan, thou shalt die. You say very true, scald knave, when God's will is. I will desire you to live in the meantime and eat your victuals. Come, there is sauce for it. You called me yesterday mountain squire, but I will make you today a squire of low degree. I pray you fall too. If you can mock a leek, you can eat a leek. Enough, Captain. You have astonished him. I say I will make him eat some part of my leek, or I will peat his pate four days. Bite, I pray you. It is good for your green wound and your bloody coxcomb. Must I bite? Yes, certainly, and out of doubt, and out of question, too, and ambiguities. By this leak, I will most horribly revenge. I eat and eat, I swear. Eat, I pray you. You will have some more sauce to your leak. There is not enough leak to swear by. Quiet thy cudgel. Thou dost see I eat. Much good to you, scald knave, heartily. Nay, pray thou throw none of it away. The skin is good for your broken coxcomb. When you take occasions to see leeks hereafter, I pray you mock at him. That is all. Good. Aye, leeks is good. Hold you, there is a groat to heal your pate. Me a groat? Yes, verily and in truth you shall take it. For I have another leek in my pocket which you shall eat. I take thy groat in earnest of revenge. If I owe you anything, I will pay you in cudgels. You shall be a woodmonger by nothing of me but cudgels. God be with you, and keep you, and heal your pate. Exit. All hell, stell shirts, shall stir for this. Go, go. You are a counterfeit, cowardly knave. Will you mock at an ancient tradition begun upon an honorable respect and worn as a memorable trophy of predeceased valor and dare not avouch in your deeds any of your words? I have seen you gleeking and galling at this gentleman twice or thrice. You fought because he could not speak English in the native garb. He could not therefore handle an English cudgel. You find it otherwise. And henceforth, let a Welsh correction teach you a good English condition. Fare you well. Exit. Doth fortune play the housewife with me now? 
news have I that my Nell is dead in the spittle of malady of France, and there my rendezvous is quite cut off. Old I do wax, and from my weary limbs honor is cudgelled. Well, bought I'll turn, and something lean to cut purse of quick hand. To England will I steal, and there I'll steal. And patches will I get unto these cudgelled scars, and I swear and swear I got them in the galley wars. Exit. Scene two, France, a royal palace. Enter at one door, King Henry, Exeter, Bedford, Gloucester, Warwick, Westmoreland, and other lords. At another, the French king, Queen Isabel, the Princess Catherine, Alice, and other ladies. The Duke of Burgundy in his train. Peace to this meeting, wherefore we are met. Unto our brother, France, and to our sister, health and fair time of day. Joy and good wishes to our most fair and princely cousin, Catherine. And as a branch and member of this royalty by whom this great assembly is contrived, we do salute you, Duke of Burgundy, and princes, French, and peers. Health to you all. Right joyous are we to behold your face. Most worthy brother England, fairly met, so are you, princes English, everyone. So happy be the issue, brother England, of this good day and of this gracious meeting, as we are now glad to behold your eyes, your eyes which hitherto have worn in them against the French, that met them in their bent, the fatal balls of murdering basilisks. The venom of such looks we barely hope, have lost their quality, and that this day shall change all griefs and quarrels into love. To cry all men to that, thus we appear. You English princes all, I do salute you. My duty to you both on equal love, great kings of France and England, that I have labored with all my wits, my pains, and strong endeavors to bring your most imperial majesties unto this bar and royal interview. Your mightness on both parts best can witness since then my office hath so far prevailed that face to face and royal eye to eye you have congreted. Let it not disgrace me if I demand before this royal view what rub or what impediment there is. Why, that the naked, poor, and mangled peace, dear nurse of arts and joyful births, should not in this best garden of the world or our fertile France put up her lovely visage? Alas, she hath from France too long been chased, and all her husbandry doth lie on heaps, corrupting in its own fertility. Her vine, the merry cheerer of the heart, unpruned, dies. Her hedges even pleached like prisoners, widely overgrown with hair, put forth disordered twigs, her, her fallow lees that the darnel, hemlock, and rank uh, fermentory doth root upon. Well, the coulter rusts that should derancinate such savagery that the even mead that erst brought for, sweetly forth the, the freckled cowslip burn it and green clover wanting the scythe all uncorrected rank conceives by idleness and nothing teems but hateful docks rough, rough thistles kexies burrs losing both beauty and utility and as our vineyards fallows meads and hedges defective in their natures grow to wildness even so our houses and ourselves and children have lost or do not learn for want of time the sciences that should become our country. 
but grow like savages. As soldiers will, then nothing but mediate on, meditate on blood to swearing and stern looks, diffused attire and everything that seems unnatural, which to reduce into our former favor, you are assembled. And my speech entreats that I may know the let, why gentle peace should not expel these inconveniences and bless us with her former qualities. If Duke of Burgundy, you would the peace whose want gives growth to the imperfections which you have cited, you must buy that peace with full accord to all our just demands, whose tenors and particular effects you have enscheduled briefly in your hands. The king hath heard them, to the which as yet there is no answer made. Well, then the peace which you before so urged lies in his answer. I have but with a cursory eye, our glance the archers. Pleaseth your grace to appoint some of your council presently to sit with us once more, <laughs> with better eed to resurvey them, we will suddenly pass our accept and peremptory answer. Brother, we shall go. Go, Uncle Exeter, and Brother Clarence, and you, Brother Gloucester, Warwick and Huntington. Go with the king, and take with you free power to ratify, augment, or alter, as your wisdom's best shall see advantageable for our dignity. Anything in or out of our demands, and we'll consign thereto. Will you, fair sister, go with the princes, or stay here with us? Your gracious brother, I will go with them. Happily a woman's voice may do some good when articles <laughs> too nicely urged be stood on. I yet leave our cousin Catherine here with us. She is our capital demand comprised within the full rank of our articles. She has good leave. Exempt all except Henry, Catherine, and Alice. Fair Catherine, and most fair. Will you vouchsafe to teach a soldier terms, such as will enter at a lady's ear and plead his love suit to her gentle heart? Your Majesty shall mock at me. I cannot speak your England. Oh, fair Catherine, if you will love me soundly with your French heart, I will be glad to hear you confess it brokenly with your English tongue. Do you like me, Kate? Well, then anyway, I cannot tell what is like me. <laughs> an angel is like you, Kate, and you are like an angel. Could you? Que je suis semblable à les anges? Oui, vraiment, sauf votre grâce, ainsi dit-il. I said so, dear Catherine, and I must not blush to affirm it. Bon Dieu, les langues des hommes sont pleines de tromperie. Oh! What says she, fair one, that the tongues of men are full of deceit? Oui, that the tongues of the men is be full of deceit. That is the princess. Uh, the princess is the better Englishwoman. <laughs> uh, faith, Kate. My wooing is fit for thy understanding. I am glad thou canst speak no better English. For, 
for if thou couldst, thou wouldst find me such a plain king that thou wouldst think I had sold my farm to buy my crown. <clears throat> I know no ways to mince it in love, but directly to say, I love you. Then if you urge me farther than to say, do you in faith, I wear out my suit. Give me your answer, faith do. And so clap hands and a bargain. Thanks. How say you, lady? <laughs> How say I... you, lady? Sauf votre honor, me understand well. Mary, if you would put me to verses or to dance for your sake, Kate, why, you undid me. For the one, I have neither words nor measure, and for the other, I have no strength in measure yet. A reasonable measure in strength. If I could win a lady at leapfrog or by vaulting into my saddle with my armor on my back, under the correction of bragging, be it spoken, I should quickly leap into a wife, or if I might buffet for my love or bound my horse for her favors, I could lay on like a butcher and sit like a jack and apes. Never off. Yeah. Uh, but before God, Kate, I cannot look greenly nor gasp out my eloquence, nor I have no cunning in protestation, only downright oaths, which I never use till urged, nor I never break for urging. If thou canst love a fellow of this temper, Kate, whose face is not worth sun burning, that never looks in his glass for love or anything he sees there. Let thine eye be thy cook. I speak to thee, plain soldier. If thou canst love me for this, take me. If not, to say to thee that I shall die is true. But for thy love, by the Lord, no. Yet I love thee too. And will thou livest, dear Kate? Take a fellow of plain and uncoined constancy, for he perforce must do thee right, because he hath not the gift to woo in other places. For these fellows of infinite tongue that can rhyme themselves into ladies' favors, they do always reason themselves out again. What? A speaker is but a pratter. A rhyme is but a ballad. A good leg will fall. A straight back will stoop. A black beard will turn white. A curled pate will grow bald. A fair face will wither, a full eye will wax hollow, but a good heart, Kate, is the sun and the moon, or rather the sun and not the moon, for it shines bright and never changes, but keeps his course truly. If thou would have such a one, take me and take me, take a soldier. Take a soldier, take a king. And what sayest thou then to my love? Uh, speak my fair and fairly, I pray thee. Is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? <sighs> no, it is not possible you should love the enemy of France, Kate. But in loving me, you should love the friend of France. For I love France so well that I will not part with a village of it. I will have it all mine. And Kate, when France is mine, 
I am yours. Then yours is France. And you are mine. I cannot tell what that is. No, Kate. Um, I will tell thee in French, which I am sure will hang upon my tongue like a new married wife about her husband's neck, hardly to be shook off. <clears throat> um, je crois sur la possession de France. Et quand vous avez la possession de moi? Let me see what. <laughs> What then? Uh, Saint Denis be my speed. Uh, donc, votre est France et vous êtes mien. It is easy for me, Kate, to conquer the kingdom as to speak so much more French. I shall never move thee in French unless it be to laugh at me. Sauf votre honneur, le François que vous parlez est meilleur que l'anglais lequel je parle. No, faith is not, Kate. But thy speaking of my tongue and I thine most truly, falsely, must needs be granted to be much at one. But, Kate, dost thou understand thus much English? Canst thou love me? I cannot tell. Can... Any of your neighbors tell, Kate? I'll ask them. Come, I know thou lovest me. And at night, when you come into your closet, you'll question this gentlewoman about me. And I know, Kate, you will to her dispraise those parts in me that you love with your heart. But, good Kate, mock me mercifully. The rather gentle princess, because I love thee cruelly. If ever thou beest mine, Kate, as I have a saving faith within me, tells me thou shalt, I get thee with scambling, and thou must therefore needs prove a good soldier breeder. Shall not thou and I, between St. Denis and St. George, compound a boy, half French, half English, and shall go to Constantinople and take the Turk by the beard? Shall we not? What sayest thou, my fair flower de lis? I do not know that. <laughs> no. Tis hereafter to know, but now to promise. Do but now promise, Kate. You will endeavor for your French part of such a boy. And for my English moiety, take the word of a king and a bachelor. How answer you, la plus belle, Catherine de Mont? Mont? Très cher at Davindelsi. Your Majesty have false French enough to deceive the most sage demoiselle that is in France. <laughs> now fie upon my false French. By my honor, in true English, I love thee, Kate. By which honor I dare not swear thou lovest me. Yet my blood begins to flatter me that thou dost notwithstanding the poor and untempering effect of my visage. Now beshrew my father's ambition. He was thinking of civil wars when he got me. Therefore was I created with a stubborn outside, with an aspect of iron, that when I come to woo ladies, I fright them. But in faith, Kate, 
The elder I wax, the better I shall appear. My comfort is that old age, that ill layer up of beauty can do no more spoil upon my face. Thou hast me, if thou hast me, at the worst, and thou shalt wear me, if thou wear me, better and better. And therefore tell me, most fair Catherine, will you have me? Put off your maiden blushes, avouch the thoughts of your heart with the looks of an empress. Take me by the hand and say, Harry of England, I am thine. Which word thou shalt so sooner bless mine ear withal, but I will tell thee aloud. England is thine, Ireland is thine, France is thine, and Harry Plantagenet is thine. Who, though I speak it before his face, if he be not fellow with the best king, thou shalt find the best king of good fellows. Come, your answer in broken music, for thy voice is music and thy English broken. Therefore, queen of all, Catherine, break thy mind to me in broken English. Wilt thou have me? That is, shall please the roi, mon père. Nay, it will please him well. Kate, it shall please him, Kate. Then it shall also content me. <laughs> <laughs> Upon that, I kiss your hand. And I call you my queen. Hey, Monsignor, laissez, laissez, ma foi. Je ne veux point que vous abissez votre grandeur et bête à la main d'une de votre seigneurie indigne serviteur. Excusez-moi, je vous supplie, mon très puissant seigneur. Uh, then uh, I will kiss your lips, Kate. Les dames et demoiselles peuvent être baissées devant leurs noces. Il n'est pas la coutume de France. Madam, my interpreter, what says she? That it is not be the fashion for les ladies de France. I cannot tell, but it's baiser on English. To kiss. Ah, ah, ah. Your Majesty entendre better que moi. It is not a fashion for the maids in France to kiss before they are married, would she say? Uh, oui, vraiment. <laughs> oh, Kate. Nice customs courtesy to great kings. Dear Kate, you and I cannot be confined within the weak list of countries' fashion. We are the makers of manners, Kate. And the liberty that follows our places stops the mouth of all fine faults, as I will do yours, for upholding the nice fashion of your country and denying me a kiss, therefore, patiently and yielding. Kissing her. <laughs> you have witchcraft in your lips, Kate. There is more eloquence in a sugar touch of them than in the tongues of the French council. And they should sooner persuade Harry of England than a general petition of monarchs. Ah, <clears throat> here comes your father. <clears throat> we enter the French king and his <clears throat> queen, Burgundy and other lords. God save your majesty. My royal cousin, teach you our princess English. 
I would have her learn, my fair cousin, how perfectly I love her. And that is good English. Is she not apt? Our tongue is rough, cuz, and my condition is not smooth. So that, having neither the voice nor the heart of flattery about me, I cannot so conjure up the spirit of love in her that he will appear in his true likeness. Pardon the frankness of my mirth if I answer you for that. If you would conjure in her, you must make a circle. If conjure up love in her, in his true likeness, he must appear naked and blind. Can you blame her then, being a maid yet rosed over with the virgin crimson of modesty, if she deny the appearance of a naked blind boy in her naked seeing self? It were, my lord, a hard condition for a maid to consign to. Yet they do wink and yield as love is blind and enforces. They are then excused, my lord, when they see not what they do. Then, good my lord, teach your cousin to consent winking. I will wink on her to consent, my lord, if you will teach her to know my meaning. For maids, well summoned, summered and warm kept, are like flies at Bartholomew tide, blind though they have their eyes, and then they will endure handling, which before they would not abide looking on. This moral ties me over to time and hot summer. And so I shall catch the fly, your cousin, in the latter end, and she must be blind too. As love is, my lord, before it loves. It is so. And you may, some of you, thank love for my blindness. You cannot see many a fair French city for one fair French maid that stands in my way. Yes, my lord, you see them prospectively. The city's turned into a maid. For they are all girdled with maiden, maiden walls that war hath never entered. Shall Kate be my wife? So please you. I am content. So the maiden cities you talk of may wait on her. So the maid that stood in the way for my wish shall show me the way to my will. We have consented to all terms of reason. Is it so, my lords of England? The king hath granted every article, his daughter first, and then in sequel all, according to their firm proposed nature. Only he hath not yet subscribed this, where your majesty demands that the king of France, having any occasion to write for matter of grant, shall name your highness in this form, and with this addition in French. Notre très fils Henri, roi d'Angleterre, héritier de France, and thus, in Latin, Preclarissimus Filius Noster Henricus Rex Angliae et Harris Francae. No, this I have not. Rather, so deny. But your request shall make me let it pass. I pray you then, in love and dear reliance, let that one article rank with the rest. And thereupon, give me your daughter. Take her, fair son, and from her blood raise up issue to me that the contending kingdoms of France and England, whose very shores look pale with envy of each other's happiness, may cease their hatred, and this dear conjunction plant neighborhood and Christian-like accord in their sweet bosoms that never war advance his bleeding sword twixt England 
unfair from us. Amen. 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 <laughs> now, welcome Kate, and bear me witness all that here I kiss her as my sovereign queen. Flourish. God, the best maker of all marriages, combine your hearts in one, your realms in one, as man and wife, being two are one in love. So be there twixt your kingdom such a spousal that may never that never may ill office or fell jealousy, which troubles oft the bed of blessed marriage, thrust in between the paction of these kingdoms, to make divorce of their incorporate league, that English may as French. French Englishmen receive each other. God speak this, amen. 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 <laughs> Prepare we for our marriage, on which day my Lord of Burgundy will take your oath and all the peers for surety of our leagues. Then shall I swear to Kate and you to me, and may our oaths well kept and prosperous be. Senate, exempt. Epilogue, enter chorus. Thus far, with rough and all unable pen, our bending author hath pursued the story. In little room, confining mighty men, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Small time, but in that small, most greatly lived, this star of England. Fortune made his sword, by which the world's best garden he achieved, and of it left his son, imperial lord. Henry the Sixth, in infant bands, crowned king of France and England, did this king succeed, whose state so many had the managing that they lost France and made his England bleed, which oft our stage hath shown, and for their sake, in your fair minds, let this acceptance take. <laughs> 